The Pinball Network is online. Launching. Silverball Chronicles. Okay, so so there's like a there's like a ah. I just hit myself in the face with the mic. Hello, everybody. I'm David Dennis, and this is Silverball Chronicles. With me this month is my co-host, who can't stop being awesome, Ron Hallett. What's up, fella? Yep, still awesome. That's me. Can't wait to talk about some Steve Ritchie. This is this is you. We are in your wheelhouse. My favorite designer. Beauty. Yeah, it looks like our listeners really want to talk about Steve Ritchie. Steve Ritchie has had a rabid response for us to make sure that uh, that we squeeze this in. In our first episode, our pilot episode, we went through uh, Steve Ritchie's early career. You know, that was sort of feeling out the podcasting world. Uh, we changed our email address. And as pilots usually are, it's a bit rough. We're into episode six now. We're moving right along. And uh, I think we're going to settle into a better groove for the second episode for Steve Ritchie. That's for sure. Most everyone I've talked to about this podcast asked me, when are you doing the next Steve Ritchie episode? Yeah, I had people I had people mention that a couple of times as well online or through message or things like that. Like, when is it coming up? And uh, what we do is is we take this philosophy is that we want them to want it. We want them to crave it. The other thing that we've run into is as I'm writing out a lot of these episodes, doing a lot of the research, is they become really long and bloated because I'll end up going on rabbit holes and research holes when I when I'll do some of the research in my spare time. And because of that, we've had to break a few of these out. So, for example, our Pat Lawler will probably be three uh, episodes, just like our Steve Ritchie episode. I'm pretty sure our Barry Ausler episode, that's going to be two episodes. So there's a lot of that happening. There's a lot of um, uh, rabbit holes and a lot of interesting facts that we can go into, as well as there's a lot of folks, Ron, that don't have enough content or enough interviews for their own individual show. So I'll stick them in with somebody else to sort of uh, stretch it out a bit. And what people don't know is our typical recording sessions are right around three hours. Not a lot of fun to edit, uh, which is a very big cliche. That's it's very true. It's, it's not fun to edit. So uh, what have you been doing What's uh, since last month? What's going on in the Ron world? Well, picked up another game. This is exciting, folks. What game is this? Well, what was our last episode? Gottlieb's, right? So yes. I got a Gottlieb. I didn't get a System 1, though. So you didn't get one of the big three from our previous episode? No, I did not get the Sinbad, Countdown, and Joker Poker. I did not get either any of those three. I got my one of my, probably my main Grail Gottlieb pin I was able to acquire. Mm, Pink Panther. Uh, no, and it's not Force 2. It's not Rocky. It is a System 80 game. Actually, it's a System 80A game. Ooh. Which I'm I'm doing the flippers right now and can't believe I have to try to knock the stupid roll pin out to just do a flipper rebuild. So I'm already annoyed. It's perfect. But the game, the game in question is a Papa favorite, Alien Star. Yeah, very cool. System 80A. Very cool art. Kind of neat rule set. It's the ultimate do the thing. Yep. It is do the thing. Mm, very good. Well, I've uh, switched out the LEDs in my Simpsons pinball party, which I picked up. Uh, I have pinball OCD, so I can't have mixed match bulbs. Uh, so by switching out, you mean you, you put the LEDs in a better game. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> very pleased with uh, with the Simpsons. 
it's a fun gu- it's a you know it's it's a different kind of game it's not very flow oriented it has some of the best call outs i have ever oh had. i i see i thing for had. me i love the theme i just hate that play feel i don't know what it is with joe balser but he can't make a left ramp to save his life uh, joe balser oh, boy i'll never have him on the crusty show <laughs> So, I mean, nobody's released any new games in the last little while. Ninja Turtles is still sort of the new kid on the block. JJP's uh, gearing up their factory. So there's not really much exciting on that round. But if you really want to talk exciting, Ron Hallett Sr. joined you on the Slam Tilt streaming channel. Oh, yeah, we did a father and son stream. Because I had had the week off. So it's like, come on down. We did it during the day. So. You were one of the two people watching, I think. Yeah, so it was it was Ron Hallett Senior. He was wearing his sombrero playing. He schooled you a few times, particularly on the getaway, which will be one of our topics today. I don't quite remember that, uh, but okay. Mm-hmm. So go back and watch that. It's uh, Slam Tilt from Twitch.tv, and uh, you can see Ron uh, get trounced. He talked. He spoke a lot more trash than I had expected. Oh yeah, we do that all the time. He is a he's a better player than me. He's he's the first pinhead, not me. Yeah, he's I just very playing good. pinball till I was in my thirties. He was playing way before then. It's it's shocking, shocking that he played pinball before then. You know, pinball did exist years ago. <laughs> that's that's right. In the eighteen hundreds, when he started it, uh, the trash talk that he gave you was was pretty funny, especially when you couldn't like quite hear because he was on the other side of the room. It was wonderful. But uh, go spend some time on the on the Slam Tilt uh, streaming channel over on Twitch. It was well worth your time. At least you could say he never remembers a time where they didn't have flippers. Yeah. <laughs> Because Humpty Dumpty was the year before he was born, so he can say, hey, they always had flippers. We've had a lot of engagement on our social media. It's been tons of fun. We're seeing uh, lots of the same characters popping up. But if you haven't joined us over on Facebook, join us, have a good time, make a few comments, uh, you know, make some suggestions, facebook.com slash silverballchronicles. Also, over on uh, thisweekinpinball.com, they have their TWIP pinball promoters database that's where you can leave a comment and find a bunch of new twitch streams youtube channels and podcasts we would love for you to swing over there give us a five-star review if you enjoy the show that just helps others find us so when they're searching they're googling around for new podcasts that uh, they're able to sort of see silverball chronicles which is a little bit different in the podcasting world all right so we'll go into our uh, mailbag this is from brian t he says, each episode so far has been a home run. Well, thank you. I always wanted to dig more into the history of modern pinball, and thankfully these guys are saving me the trouble of doing it myself. Do it yourself, Brian. Don't be so lazy. I love how much research and work these guys put in each show. That, that's all, David. Ron and Dave make a great team and play well off of each other. Dave makes me laugh at least a couple of times an episode, and Ron is such an engaging historian. This is the podcast that has been missing in my life. Keep up the great work. That's great. Billy Y, he says, the show is great. I listened to it on a road trip, and it kept me interested the whole time there isn't a lot of fluff just a bunch of interesting takes on older pinball companies and personalities t-shirts ron i finally got my uh, silver ball swag order Woo-hoo! yes i've got uh, i'm actually wearing the shirt right now all my old t-shirts everything's gone it's all silver ball swag silver ball chronicle shirts from here on out uh, i also i got a mug and a few stickers I have to say, if I was going to uh, suggest that everybody else go and buy one, I figured I would buy kind of one of everything and see what the quality was. Pretty pleased, actually. Um, good quality shirts, great printing. Keeps me warm up here in these cold Canadian winters. 
Very good. <laughs> and we don't make much off the swag, but if you enjoy the show and you need a new shirt and you want to support us, drop over there and pick up a shirt. Yeah, silverballswag.com. Just go ahead and click over and grab one. Corrections from our previous episode, Ron. And um, we didn't get a whole lot of corrections to our mailbag, which is silverballchronicles at gmail.com. But there is one person who had a lot of corrections who spoke to you. Is that right? Yeah, Bruce said uh, our System 1 episode had all kinds of errors. So I, I, I told him, like, well, send them in. We'd, we'd love to correct ourselves. But, of course, he's, he's missed the deadline. Yeah, he, he, has, he said he had a whole letter's worth of corrections. Of course he did. He's formally typing that up on his typewriter. Yep. And by the time he sends them in, we'll be two episodes ahead and everyone will forget about the System 1 episode. Exactly. So we're looking forward to all those corrections from him. And we'll, we'll bring those into another episode if there actually was any corrections, which I don't think there was. It was absolutely seamless and perfect with not an error in sight. So today's episode, this is, this, is, uh, this is a big deal. This is a big one. This is Steve Ritchie, the System 11, and Bally Williams era. Wow, there are some classics in this lineup, just like our last episode with Steve Ritchie, a major list of first ever innovations in pinball. And it's funny you say Bally Williams, because this is the, around 1988, Williams bought out Bally, so they started producing games with the Bally name, but you'll notice there are no Steve Ritchie games under the Bally name. He was a Williams purist. He, was a, he would not do any Bally games. He would not do anything with Bally on it. He would only do Williams. He had that tattoo on his arm, which may or may not be true. The mid-80s saw a world of social and economic unrest, which was reflected in pop culture and, of course, pinball. The baby boomers were entering their 40s, and a new generation was coming to age, Generation X. Music was changing, technology was changing, home computers had arrived, the Cold War was still a thing, pinball was back in a big way. Suddenly, in the mid-90s, home video games became the norm. The internet, or the information superhighway, arrived en masse. Gen X sold out, went corporate, and extreme was spelled with an X instead of an E. Yeah, I remember the 90s, everything was extreme. Steve Ritchie rode the wave from the bottom of the industry in the mid-1980s all the way to the top again, like a Honda dirt bike made of quarters and fueled by pinball players' tears. Through this awesome time in pinball, the best-selling designer ever continued to build his legacy, and you'll see in this episode, once again, redefine the industry as it struggled to survive. Steve Ritchie, The Mullet Years. First place to start. What is your favorite Steve Ritchie System 11 memory? Memory or game? Well, I mean, the game is game is stored in... Okay, well, if you want to be picky, <laughs> you want to be picky. What's your favorite game? Uh, What's your favorite thing? Well, I mean, the most significant System 11 memory would be the first System 11 game, which would be high speed. Mm -hmm. It pretty much started all of this. Started the uptick in pinball. Space Shuttle kept the lights on, but high speed brought it to the next level. Yeah, I um, I have a lot of fond uh, memories of of high speed, but those are in sort of the rearview mirror, right? I wasn't around in the arcades around the mid '80s. I was hardly around in the mid '80s. All of all of that era is sort of me looking at it through the lens of the last couple of years where I've been in the hobby. When I think System Eleven, you know, I'm thinking you know Pat Lawler. 
I'm thinking Steve Ritchie. I'm thinking Barry Ausler. You know, those 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 were really big things. But something about high speed is pretty cool. I, I really, really, really like that. And it would probably be one of the top three System 11s that I would want to buy. And that's probably because I don't have a lot of experience with them. But do you think Steve prefers his System 11 work to his WPC work? I don't know. I've never asked him that. Yeah, I'd love to find out because we had uh, one person uh, messages, Ahmed, and he said that Steve Ritchie's WPC work is his most fun, but his System 11 work is his most creative, which I thought was a very cool comment. So when we left the King of Flow in 1982, he had taken a step back from pinball and began running his own video game company called King Video Designs. And he continued to innovate in the video game space for a few years. Pinball has this way of sucking you back in. Yeah, he was working on a game called Devastator, which I believe is supposed to have some like 3D elements to it. Yeah, he's he's Steve Ritchie's so neat. He must have a, a pretty cool mind. I've never met the man. I would love to meet him. You've never really taken any major breaks from pinball, did you? Not really, but I didn't start till much later. I mean, I was in my 30s before I even played pinball so yeah i think i think somebody like like a steve ritchie taking a break from pinball you know he's got all these ideas the technology has changed again i bet you he missed it i bet you he wanted to get back and really those mid 80s there wasn't much going on in pinball to be honest you know and we'll get into that maybe a couple of other episodes but uh he was uh i bet you he missed it and he wanted to get back but he had this time off to sort of stew and develop and think and create which i think is kind of cool and for the next really decade decade and a little bit he really brought a lot of those ideas uh, ahead to the forefront can you imagine though that the pressure that steve ritchie probably had to continue to design and innovate the way he had done when we speak about his his earlier time at williams it, you know i don't think he i don't think he felt pressure really i i think he put a lot of pressure on himself because he's made some amazing games i don't think so i don't think there was corporate pressure i think he might have put pressure on himself nobody wants to come back and make a bunch of games that suck in late 1985, Steve Ritchie was back at Williams after a three-year leave from pinball. So what do you do when you get back? You're like, ah, it's time to get back. It's time to get back. Let's get back and play some pinball. You continue, you just play the hits, right? You just pull out a similar layout or you pull out kind of a, you know, an old theme that he's done before or something like that. Just to no, settle back in, right? No, that'll be the part three of the Steve Ritchie. So. Oh, okay. So there's some foreshadowing on that. So he's not- Sorry, Steve. He's not going Brian Eddy, you know, he's not laying it out like he's done before, something familiar, you know, just to get back in the groove, because, yeah, I don't know, the, pa nope. the paper is different they draw on now or something. He hasn't even invented the patented Picard Maneuver shot yet, that he would use a lot, the greatest shot in pinball. Steve Ritchie, hell no, you make high speed. So first on the high speed stats, it's a driving police chase car theme. January 1986, it's a solid state System 11, the first System 11, which you mentioned before. Standard body machine sells 17,080 units. Smash, software by Larry DeMar, Black Knight, uh, Adam's Family, those are some of his artwork by Mark Sprenger, and of course, a little bit by Python Angelo, which you can hear about in our Python Angelo episode. Sound by Larry Jamar, Larry DeMar, Eugene Jarvis, and Bill Prod. So Jarvis, you'll remember him from things like Space Shuttle, Firepower, Gorgar. Prod, he was very, very big in the System 11 era with some of the games on the forward. One of his most famous ones being Pinbot. Once again, Steve Ritchie creates a bunch of firsts. How does he keep doing that, Ron? How does he keep developing these ideas? Just stuff. It's innovative. Mind-boggling. Mind-boggling. 
So here's the list of the first. I'm just, I'm just going to go down through the firsts, and you let me know what you think about each one, okay? First pinball game to play a complete song. Okay. First Williams pin to use alphanumeric displays. Which let them do a lot more. It, it Specifically, you could put your initials in now. Yeah, you could have real high scores. Real high scores. First use of auto percentaging in the solid state game, which is for replay scores. That is the single biggest first. Oh. As far as an operator. Because that's who's buying these machines, right? Today, you and I are buying machines. Years ago, people with bars did. I tell you, Tim Arnold of the Las Vegas Pinball Museum. Uh, I mean, he was an opera. He operated his own place, Pinball Pete's, like in Michigan, for years and years. And and he said this was the biggest innovation. So how does auto percentaging work? Basically, the the issue they always had is if you got a pinball machine, you would set what the score needed for a replay. And usually there'd be a couple of different tiers, maybe you know, 1 million and the next one might be 2 million. The problem is it was a set, it was a set number. Like you, 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 you set it and then that was it. So if you put this game on a location with a bunch of good players, they'd just be getting replays all over the place. So if, and if you upped it, then your lesser players would never get a replay. So they wouldn't be happy. So just like it says, it auto percentages. You put it in a location. If it's in a location with a bunch of good players, it'll keep raising the score required for a replay. If it's crappier players, it'll lower it. So every time you, you sort of smash a high score, it just sort of raises that bar a little bit higher. Yeah. And then if a bunch of people come in and it starts lowering again all at the same time. Yep. And it, you just set the percentage you want. How often do you want people to get replays? Very commonplace now, but that was a big deal. Oh, every game has it now. But that until that game, that didn't exist. Mm, it's the first jackpot available only during multiball. The first use of broken switch compensation programming. Fancy. And the first solid state game with an operator report. Yeah, a lot of those, like the operator report, switch compensation, playing a full song, that all has to do with the new platform, the System 11 platform. Although maybe Steve Ritchie didn't come up with all of these, some of this is probably Larry DeMar. Um, it's interesting to point out that it was it, it was sort of the, the working relationship between the two that actually got it into the System 11 system, and Steve Ritchie being the first one there. It was the first one in the next of the changing board set. What's the major differences between the board sets of like the previous system and this, which is, I mean, really System 9, right? Where was the previous one? Well, System 9 was only for three games, and that was kind of a transition that was, I think, Comet, Comet, Space Shuttle, and Sorcerer. Yeah. With the three System 9 games. System 7, you had a separate um, MPU and driver board that were connected with a 40-pin interconnect, which was problematic. So System 9 and then later System 11, they just put everything on one board. Now, I hear System 11 is a super pain in the ass to work with. They used multiplexing for for the flashers and coils it got more and more complicated as the games got more and more complicated they kept having to put more they, they first they, they added different boards and they originally they had a lot of mini boards underneath the play field with resistors on them and then they eventually had a they just did an interconnect board at the bottom of the back box that had all the resistors on it they just it kept getting more and more complicated until they just did away with it and started WPC. Yeah, which is on the second half. Yeah, which they used the longest period of time. I haven't played a lot of System 11s. I've played a few kind of in passing. The most machines, for some reason, that I've played are the earlier uh, System 7s. 
first i don't know why system six system seven i play a lot of those and uh, of course the bally williams era when i think system 11 i think flashers because man they loved flashers they used so many flashers in system 11 i love it so much so much light so much light so much light and i mean i think we can agree when it comes to pinball history and system 11 specifically High Speed has the greatest story. Talk about the background story of it. Yeah, it's tough to beat that. Steve Ritchie tells the story a billion times, but we're going to go through it in summary. High Speed is, is, in my opinion, pretty epic, and it's based on Steve Ritchie's real-life police chase in a 1979 Porsche 928. He's finally caught in Lodi, California on Interstate 5 and accused of speeding at 146 miles an hour. And in the correct format for everybody else to understand, that's 234 kilometers an hour, which is insane. Which I believe it's Lodi, I think. Lodi? That's the Creedence, Clear, Creedence Clearwater Revival song. He says Lodi, so I'm Okay, well, here we go. Dave, mispronouncing all the names. Uh, unless John Fogarty is wrong. John, John Fogarty is wrong about a lot of things. His pronunciation of Lodi is probably correct. Basically, he goes, he gets in trouble. Uh, he has to go and and go to court and things like that. It, it basically, he wanted to see how fast his new Porsche will go, and he's speeding along the highway. Eventually, the police catch up to him and give him a rest. It's it's pretty funny when you hear Steve talk about it, but we everybody's heard it a billion times. He literally tells it every time he can because it's the greatest story in pinball history. And basically, he got off for the most part. He just... He couldn't drive anywhere but to work for a period, and that was about it. Yeah, nowadays, um, people give us millennials crap for the world that we live in. But if you if, if I got caught right now driving my, oh God, driving my Nissan Murano down the highway here, the Trans-Canada Highway, at 200, that will take my car. I'll never get car insurance ever again. Oh, I have to take my kids to school on a bicycle. Like, it would just be the worst. Back in the 1980s, they're like, you shouldn't do that. Your punishment is you can only drive to work, which I'm sure Steve totally ignored. Eh, he might have. High Speed also had some budget and cost concerns at Williams, right? So his, his first game back, he's got all these great ideas. What did they actually call High Speed? Well, it's, it's another funny thing. At Williams, they would have non-flattering names for almost every game they did. And High Speed's non-flattering name was High Cost. Steve Ritchie would say the nickname around Williams for high speed was high cost. It wasn't really that much more expensive than all the other games that were being developed at the time. I don't get it, which I assume means it was actually probably very expensive and he just didn't want to admit it. <laughs> it could just be the long development cycle they had for it. Yes, Steve says, I think we put in a lot of new things as the Whitewoods progressed. At one point, Larry and I were so disgusted after three months of work that we decided to throw everything out and start over. It was one of the smartest moves we made. The game became much more refined and progressed further than other designs that I worked on in the time allotted. The funny thing is, if you want to see that Whitewood, the one that they threw away after three months, there is a picture of it on the Internet Pinball Database, ipdb.org. They brought it to Pinball Expo one year, and they put a very unflattering sign on it that I cannot read. It was somewhat familiar, right? It has a figure eight on it, which we will see later on another game. Mm, very good. God, the foreshadowing. You're on the foreshadowing today. You're just, you are, you are roping in the audience right now. See on the top, it says, hello. My name is something. 
which is interesting. It's still interesting. It's got the drop targets on the sides to the stand-ups. That would have yeah. been more fun. It's got all drops. It's got tons of drop targets. Yeah. Steve Ritchie loves his drop targets. Like, can you imagine today that George Gomez or, or, or John Borg just after three months was like, ah, throw it all out. That's not happening. Uh, no, it, that did happen. That happened at Stern. They had a certain designer who got arrested for a certain thing and they kind of had to restart the entire game. Uh, yeah, but I mean, if you thought of just one designer, one person, you're you're working on you're working on Ninja Turtles. John Borg's working on Ninja Turtles. And then he's just like a quarter of the way through. He's like, this is crap. We're throwing it all. Yeah, out. they wouldn't do that. That, that would not happen. That would not happen. So this is I guess this is a good spot to maybe chat about Larry DeMar since I don't think I'm going to get the opportunity to do it. Larry DeMar yeah. is awesome. Yeah. He had the greatest timing ever. He came to Williams, worked on their board set. When video games got hot, him and Eugene Jarvis realized they were only a few people there and knew how to do video games because they had done, uh, I believe, Defender. So they both quit, left, started their own company called VidKids, then came back to Williams and said, hey, we'll make video games for you. So they did that. Then when everything crashed, I, th- I think Jarvis went back to college. I think Larry DeMar was away for a while. Then he came back, developed their WPC system, worked on a ton of awesome Pat Lawler games, became like head of whatever. He was higher level executive there. And then when Pinball 2000, he was working on the development of that. Then when the writing was on the wall, he actually left before the Star Wars one came out and started his own company working on slot machine software. Wow. So he, his timing was always good. He would get out just at the right time. Yeah, pretty brilliant. Chris Graner would say that Larry DeMar and Eugene Jarvis were literally geniuses. They really got on the simplest level what coin-op was. I would agree. Things like auto-percentaging, right? Like, Well, according to Steve, he said he came up with that. But he's the, he didn't implement it. No, he told, yeah. He said he came up with it, but Larry DeMar coded it. That kind of stuff is pretty nuts. So so Larry DeMar, he went to MIT in the 1970s. From 1980 to 1999, he was director of engineering at Williams Electronic Games, did slot machines for Williams in the 1990s, founded a company called Spooky Cool Designs, which you had mentioned, um, which did social mobile gaming, uh, which was a very big thing sort of at that beginning of those Facebook games, for God's sakes, that would pop up all the time. Uh, that company actually became part of Joe Cam and Cow's Zynga company, which also does a lot of those sort of mobile gaming apps. He also had his own company. It's called uh, LED Leading Edge Design, mm-hmm. which was also kind of a play on his initials. I think it's like Larry, Larry Eugene DeMar, which was always, if you played any Williams games of the era, you'll usually see a LED in the default high score table. That's him. Mm, and and now he's working as a consultant for gaming and the casino industry. So now he just charges people to tell them what to do, which is pretty cool. So you come to me, you pay me some money, I tell you what to do, and then if it works, it works. If it doesn't, it doesn't, and I'm out of here. It's great. This guy, this guy is awesome. Would you say that that marriage of Larry Demar and Steve Ritchie was was one of the best creative collaborations around? Uh, well, they did two games, Black Knight and High Speed. Pretty much says it all right there. They had a very tumultuous relationship, though. Yes. The word in the industry was that Steve has a lot of passion, and this often results in a lot of arguments. Steve says he, meaning Larry, did much more than the normal output and imaginative contribution than any others I've worked with. We had knockdown, down drag-out fights, and the game always won. 
At the end of the project, we weren't speaking to each other. We patched up and forgot about it and remain good friends today. There's some funny stories that you hear about Steve Ritchie getting in arguments with uh, Dwight Sullivan through the WPC era, him getting into arguments with Lyman Sheets. Good times, good times. Now, there's some interesting items about Larry. This comes from a Steve Ritchie interview in 2005. Larry actually invented the jackpot feature, which is crazy. Those fantastic alphanumeric displays, which you mentioned before, which do numbers and letters and a hell of a lot of rules over the years. Those were all Larry's. Larry himself is actually a very, is an excellent player. And at one point, Steve Ritchie would say, I think he lost touch with the average player and I had to beg him, can we please win an extra ball on my own play field? Yeah. And when I heard that story, there might've been an F-bomb somewhere in that sentence. <laughs> that's one thing about this steve has toned down a lot of the uh stories throughout the years yeah he's it's funny because he's tamed them down as opposed to most he's, people he's, that he's bring tamed them, them down but I, I heard the original versions which were probably the true versions uh the artwork we've we you know i'm for some reason i always get pulled back to artwork uh it's probably because i'm not a very good player it's also probably because i'm new to the industry and i have no idea what i'm doing so we usually default to artwork some pretty cool stuff on here by mark springer and he told ipdb that uh if you look at those cars on the playfield, so it's like a, uh, oh God, cliche time, world under glass, right? There's a car chase going on with highways and streets, and there are some squad cars down there. They have written on top of them A8, W11, and S81, which is, are the initials for the birth date of his son. He told IPDB that Steve did not want the color green used anywhere on the playfield, calling it bad luck. Mark used green anyway and included a good luck small four-leaf clover near the top of the traffic light. Because you know that that last green game that we talked about was a sales success. Oh, Quicksilver. Ugh. Hideous. With the success of this game, he believes the clover was responsible for finally breaking the dreaded green curse. The other interesting thing about the game is the fact that you as the player are running from the cops and the cops are actually the bad guys and you're trying to get away. What, what kind of message is that sending? That is not what children growing up in a good household should be doing. And that's probably another reason why it was so popular. Like, I get to run from the cops and get away? Yeah! Yeah! So if we, uh, you know, if we tie this back, our Python Angelo episode, we spoke a little bit about uh, the Steve Ritchie Python Angelo collaboration here. Python Angelo did the backlash, which I think is probably one of the best backlashes yep. ever in pinball. Which as we said, I think in the Python episode, it was known as the zombie cops from hell is what it was called within Williams. It's all about bringing, bringing everybody down a peg when they're working. It's pretty funny. You know, there are a lot of arguments there between Steve and Python about, should we be running from the police? Should we be chasing the, the, the car, et cetera, et cetera. But I think really, when you look at it, it comes together very, very well. A good marrying of code, art, and sound and playfield like no other. This is really where Steve starts to develop that upper right flipper into a side ramp. This is really where he starts that. This is the first game with the, I was called the Picard maneuver, but basically it is a left orbit from the lower right flipper, comes around to the upper right flipper, and you hit it up a ramp. Or another loop or something else, but he has used this. This is the first game he used it, and he has used it a lot. 
his his first game at Williams uh, back in the Flash days kind of had the the beginning of this as well as somewhat repeatable. It had somewhat repeatable loop, yeah. Back then, I guess it's you're, you, he's learning to sort of the, the geometry, but he's really starting to dial that in now. And this is a heck of a fun shot when you shoot that from that flipper goes up that ramp into kind of these two metal ramps, and it'll either divert left or right. They're actually plastic. Though. Well, it's plastic to a metal ramp. Very very cool, very satisfying shot, and something completely unusual because this is the time where sort of ramps are becoming kind of they've moved from that. Uh, bi-level Black Knight-style kind of design around 83. Now we're a couple of years out from that, and now we're moving into what we would notice as the ramps of today. Very cool. Yeah, more molded ramps that actually curve and do things like that. The, the You can actually rev the engine of the car, which is pretty cool, with the flipper button. One thing that you brought up in our Python episode is that you are not so much a fan of the playfield and the back glass and the side of the cabinet all sort of being different designers. Yeah, and, and more more along, the, we'll get more into that with Getaway. That's why I really have an issue with it. Once again, Richie comes out of the gate and just smashes some sales right out of there. 17,080 units. Um, I guess a big driver for those sales would be some th- things like those auto percentaging, the the bookkeeping features and stuff in the system. I think that would be a huge driver for sales, more so maybe than kind of the playfield design or art, which I'm sure helped. But uh, as an operator, you'd be like, wow, look at all of these great innovations, which are going to help me. And you forgot one of them. What's that? The beacon, the rotating beacon. Oh, yes. The flashing light on yeah. the top. Which does says, look at me, look at me. And they, they'd fire it off during a track mode. I mean, how can you miss that? The Steve Ritchie loves, loves to flash people. Oh, my. Well, after another smash hit. Another pinball theme just out of nowhere. Steve Ritchie is just ready to play the hits, right? He's he's like, okay, that's that's enough. I've shown everybody that I can reinvent, reinvest. Let's just go back. Let's slack off a little bit and do the same sort of theme I've done before. Incorrect. You can't have any more original ideas. Incorrect. We're going to have a vertical up kicker. We're going to have tons of habit trails. No, let's go back to the well. No. Nope. Let's just improve and invade. Nope. We're going to make it even more expensive. We're going to have F14 Tomcat. Woo. This is a good one. Which Steve Ritchie has said, this was purposely overdone. It's it's a Cold War theme, classic USA versus Russia. Yagov is the bad guy, the Russian dude. But where High Speed had three flippers, this has four. Where High Speed had one beacon, this has three. This has like an obscene number of flashers. And it is loud and in your face. I think the tagline was like, it's fast, it's furious, and it fights back. I think that's what the flyer said. Man, that's cool. And it has a kicker. Basically the same, same mech they would use for a kickback, except it's pointed at you. So if you hit this thing, it just fires it right at you. This is a Jets Aviation Cold War theme, March 1987. This is a System 11A, uh, standard body, 14,502 units. Software by Eugene Jarvis and Ed Boone, who's a new name. Artwork by Doug Watson, who we're going to see a lot of. And he's done a bunch of the stuff in the 80s and 90s at Bally and Williams. And sound by Chris Graner and Bill Prod. Have you seen Top Gun? I have never seen Top Gun. It's released 1986 with uh, Tom Cruise, Val Kilmer, Goose, Maverick. Directed by uh, Tony Scott, produced by Jerry Brockheimer. 
pretty decent movie. It's uh, 55% Rotten Tomatoes. Take me, take me to the Danger Zone. Yeah, I just remember Kenny Loggins, Danger Zone, and there's a volleyball scene. That's literally all I know yeah. about the movie. Yeah, greatest volleyball scene in movie history. Okay. Anyway, that movie, uh, totally unaffiliated with F-14 Tom. No, this is a Cold War. Not anything like it at all. This is a Cold War theme. Um, of course, Steve Ritchie is the Russian in this game. He is Yagoff. He's he's pretty much a Russian in almost every Williams game. Steve Ritchie's always the bad guy. He's always the bad guy. The Yagoff kicker, as it's called, that fires the ball back at you. I mean, for years after that, whenever I see a game with that feature, I just instinctively call it a Yagoff kicker, no matter what it is. Now, I mean, I can see how people could see the similarities between F-14 Tomcat and Top Gun. I mean, jet fighters, Russians, America, you know music there's russians in top gun i, never I saw. think so. i think so isn't it isn't it top gun at the end is there's russians or something there's always russians in, in in your american movies not to be outdone this was another pinball machine with a bunch of firsts you mentioned it the kickback that fired the ball right back at the flippers yagov kicker yeah because steve ritchie's a sadist and it's also the first machine with an autosave which in this game they call it flight insurance Mm-hmm. Yeah, because they, I guess, realized that it was almost impossible and they should give you your ball back a little bit. Yeah, that was made specifically because of the Yaga kicker, just so if it threw the ball down the center, like the first time, you're like, okay, you get that back. Yeah, I mean, I mean, Steve Ritchie obviously would feel bad if you punched some child in the face, so he'd give them their quarterback. Unless he was the Black Knight, then he would ask for their money. That's right. So a uh, listener of the show, uh, Mikhail Gorbachev, says, America Week. Russian MiG-25 Foxbat, faster pinball machine, much better, less flasher, two-player facing kickbacks, Russia strong. So uh, thank you, Mikhail, for that that feedback. That may or may not have been legitimate. Steve Ritchie uh, has said in the past that there were actually 10 prototypes for this game. Can you believe, can you imagine... That's crazy to be moving stuff around that much and to have the amount of time available to just do that. Those poor guys at Gottlieb at this time are banging stuff out in like three weeks and he's making 10 prototypes over at Williams. I think the um, quality of the games are uh, all you need to know about which was the better option. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Some of the items that were changed on his designs were the cabinet art design was deemed too plain. So they changed that for production. There was actually a second pop bumper up at the top. So there's only one pop bumper kind of in the middle of some stand-up targets where the two t- uh, two upper flippers are. There was two pop bumpers. That didn't play well, so they took one out. I can tell you the next two were not just on prototypes. They were on production games. Ah, so clear flashing lamp domes along with a back wall of play field were too blinding. So they changed them to red. The beacon on the top of the back box was deemed too bright, so they had the domes changed. Yeah, they changed a lot of stuff. Uh, F-14 had a really long production run, and they changed a lot of stuff throughout the run. Earlier F-14s, they used the same flipper coils for the two upper flippers than they used for the two bottom flippers, which is insane, because they're way too strong. They just, like, break things. But what they also did is if you played a F-14 Tomcat, you may notice that there are flasher domes on the top to target banks, like just a flasher dome sitting over the target bank, but with no flasher in it, which seems kind of odd. Well, if you had one of the first couple hundred, 
or however many the number, maybe 500, you would have had flashers in there. And what would happen is the flashers, because the flippers were way too strong, they would pound the targets and the target would get thrown back into the flasher, which would short the flasher voltage into the lamp matrix and just blow up the game. So they removed those flashers and they put uh, weaker coils for those upper flippers. And then they had a service bulletin that went out to tell people this is how to remove the flashers and how to change the wiring and all that. I know this because I reversed the bulletin on my game to put the flashers back in. Only Steve Ritchie would design a game that tears itself apart from playing. It tears itself apart. But it's it's in the back panel, it had all clear flasher domes originally. They changed them to red. And then the the beacons on top, it was red, clear, and blue. So they changed it to red, white, and blue. Now, this is a big game for um, for uh, tournament players and stuff, right? Like, this is a very popular sort of tournament game. What doesn't play very long, it's got a very difficult strategy. It doesn't have any real bad, like, mystery awards, like a Gottlieb, you know, get-your-opponent-score type stuff that has to be <laughs> removed. Um, yeah, they used it, I think, one of the pop-up finals, the final game, was, it was decided on a 14-tom-cat. Now it's strategy, right? It's you start, try to start multi-ball and then lock in your jackpots by shooting back up into, so, so the ball comes down, you got to shoot around the orbit, which goes into a vertical up kicker, which kicks it up into a ramp, right? Uh, yeah. Like a, a plastic ramp diverter thingy that diverts the balls various ways. There's a ton of habit trails in this game. It has the up kicker in the back. And most of the game is just hitting the right orbit because it'll spot your Tomcat letters. So you can kind of get away with doing that. But it also has mini orbits. You can use the, and it will always, when the ball is locked in a position and it ejects it, it will always eject it to the flipper you need it to go to, which I appreciate, you know, to get a Tomcat target. It also has, the other cool thing you can try to do in it, which no one ever does, is try to max the bonus out because it has 8x. You can go up to 8x bonus. The left the left mini orbit, when it's lit, it gives you a multiplier, 2x up to 8x. And if you max the bonus, which is on the right orbit again, you can get over like a million just in bonus, and it counts up forever. It's awesome. And it's, it's extremely obnoxiously loud. Flash. There's so many flashers in this game. They paired them up, too. They'll have like one, one transistor run like four four um, flashers and it just you're everywhere and when you start multi-ball you know you start multi-ball plus if you have the attract uh, mode music and stuff on the game will just come on every few minutes with the beacons will just go and will start playing music like play me play me mm-hmm. steve ritchie he did the the voice of uh of uh what is his name yagoff the bad guy yagoff right and his brother mark did the voice talent of the protagonist yeah. Yeah. And Mark Ritchie, of course, will go on to do other designs and have somewhat of a career in pinball. Uh, completing the high score gets the Navy's anthem anchors away. Yep. Which I guess you Americans all know more than us Canadians. Well, the funny thing is, I believe you get one version of anchors away if you were like second, third, fourth place. You get a slower version of it, a special version of it, if you get first place. A little bit of special, little something, something for you there. 
Or I might have been totally wrong on that. It might just play the slower version if you get your name up. That's what I think it is. Because it plays that at the end of every game. If you know, please send us an email at silverballchronicles at gmail.com. So I think it's time to slack. Slack in black. It was 1989 when Richie decided to slack off and take it easy on his next title. He didn't have to spend all that effort on a new story and a new character. Of course, I'm talking about Black Knight 2000. Now, because it's 2020, we realize that uh, 2000 back in the 1980s meant the future. If you had 2000 after your name, that was a big deal. Do you have any memories of uh, Black Knight 2000? Uh, greatest multi-ball intro sequence ever made. Wow. That's, 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 a, that's, a, that's a hot take. T- tell me one better. I, I dare someone. If, please send it to silverballchronicles at gmail.com if you can name me a game that has a better multi-ball intro. Ooh, maybe Ghostbusters? No. Nope. Sorry. Oh, and mm. I, I didn't even count the... There's also the Ransom intro, which is also incredible. Yeah. Here's a funny Black Knight 2000 story. When they were debuting this game for one of the European distributors. So this was in Europe. I don't remember which country. Maybe Germany. I don't know. But the the distributor was going to do this huge presentation for Black Knight 2000. And he had this idea. He was going to have an actual knight on a horse come out on the stage as they introduced the game. So they did that. Except the horse kind of, um, um, how do I say this, uh, let loose, if you know what I mean, all over the stage. And the they had to get everyone out of the, the room because of the smell and clean up the mess the horse made. And then everyone came back in and they were able to debut the game. Yeah. So uh, yeah, give me your stats. At uh, Black Knight 2000, it's fantasy. It's like a castle battle theme. That's from April of 89. It is a System 11B. It's a standard body. It only sells 5,703 units. Sound by Dan Forden, Brian Schmidt. Software by Ed Boone. And artwork, once again, by Doug Watson. So our friend, uh, Carrie Hardy from Carrie Hardy YouTube channel. He's a restorer, an enthusiast, a pinball commentator. He recently sold a machine to buy a Black Knight 2000. And he said this, oh man, I wish I could do his charming Texan accent, but I can't. One of the best soundtracks of the era. Heavy on the right flipper. Although it is overall a simple game code-wise, the speed and flow keeps me entertained. Why revisit Black Knight? Well, because as Steve puts it, people are always asking me, when are you going to make another Black Knight? I had a vision for a two-level game, and Black Knight just fit. Speech and music have come so far. And they did. So it's it's the same thing, right? It, it, you, you look at Sword of Rage now, which we'll cover in our next Steve Rifshi episode. People will just ask you, when are you going to do Black Knight? When are you going to do Black Knight? And he just, great idea. Okay, why not? So Carrie, he, uh, he alluded to this. The music of Black Knight 2000. Music has always been and apparently always will be a big deal for Steve Ritchie and his games. Steve says, I want a music that made me feel energized and excited, laced with urgency and drive. I wrote most of the music as chord progressions first, then added some leads and riffs to the main songs of the game. I wanted the music to be fast and furious to inspire players. I also wanted the sound and music package to stand out in a loud arcade. And that sure, sure did. 
Brian Schmidt added great bass lines that transform the music. So they do 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 do. Dan Forden wrote a bunch of lead lines and sampled my '72 Les Paul Custom through a Marshall 100 watt lead amp and a Marshall cabinet with a 412 Celestion speakers. I'm probably saying that wrong. Some musician will make fun of me now. <laughs> Dan laid out my guitar scale electronically for playing throughout the game. Dan created and engineered the entire sound package, including the sound effects and enhancing and coaching my voice as the Black Knight. Dan Vorden deserves a lot of credit for his spectacular work on this game. He, you can you can read this. This this originally came from an old IRC chat conversation interview that uh, that uh, Steve had way back in the '90s, and it's funny because you can see the the passion and the detail and the memory that he has around specifically black Knight 2000. He knows the guitar, he knows the amp, he knows the, he knows who did what it's, he has such passion for the music in his games, particularly black Knight 2000, that he can remember exactly what was what going into that game. That is pretty, pretty cool. The other thing I'll, the other shout out I'll give to black Knight 2000, uh, Joe Joe's who we talked about in our stern episode, our classic stern. By this point, he was at Williams, and he was. It was his engineering that designed the upper playfield and how it pivots, so it's easily serviceable. The upper playfield is insanely packed on Black Knight 2000. Yeah, which is a, which is sad when you look at uh, Sword of Rage. Sword of Rage has a loop and a lock shot. The Black Knight 2000 has three lanes on the top, three lanes on the bottom, three pop-uppers, one flipper, a loopable orbit shot, a motorized three-bank that goes up a ramp to another lock area. That's pretty packed. That's insanity. Now, you can see that it's a bit of a niche title, right? It only sells... Uh, you know, far less than the other Steve Ritchie yep. games at the time. It's only selling about, you know, a third of those games at 5,000 units. You can see it's more of a, a passion project. Yeah. And it went through, it went through some changes too with the plastics. The original Black Knight 2000s had more futuristic looking plastics and then they changed it to a more medieval looking plastic set. Yeah. So depending on when you got yours, you'll have one plastic set or the other. Very cool. Well, I think if you took out the sound package. If you took out that sort of iconic Black Knight 2000 song, I think it would be a turd. No, it's got a great upper play field. The biggest issue is when it comes off the upper play field, it's just so easy to trap. Way too much control. If, you, mm. if it was a better exit and a less bright flipper only, it would have been a better game. Well, Carrie mentions that, right? It's it's bright flipper all, all day. All so bright if it, flipper all day. So it comes down off of the top play field, kind of into almost like a drain, if you will, down into a ramp, into the inside lane, down by the flippers. And then you just sort of trap it and then shoot it back up. It doesn't go in the in lane. It actually goes, it, it goes past the front of the slingshot and just right to you. So you, you can move it around a little bit, but it, the most you're going to do is you'll have to hit it on the fly back up top, which if you get the timing down, you can just keep doing that over and over. It's one of those games that I, 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 I owned. Really loved it, and then when I got better at pinball, the games got longer and longer and longer, and then I had to sell it. Yeah. But I yeah. still miss that multi-ball intro sequence. It's the greatest of all time. And it has that really cool sort of uh, insert wheel at the bottom. They're sort of like lightning bolts. Lightning wheel. The lightning wheel. And it's so cool. It just looks so cool. Which you'll learn about in episode three of Steve Ritchie, because he's going to use it again. So after all these hits, you got to lay an egg, right? Oh. That was Roller Games. Steve Ritchie says, I used to hate it, 
Well, I used to hate it a lot more. I played it more lately, and it's a good game. It's fun. <laughs> He's lying. He hates it. I could tell you for a fact he hates this game. He says, he says I, cer- I can certainly point out that my least favorite game is roller games. <laughs> I'm sighing because I, I, I have one downstairs, so it, it, it pains me. <laughs> roller games, he says, was depressing in that the show went off the air before even producing the game. The show was that bad. No, Maybe it isn't no. apparent to play the game, but all the wind went out of the sails towards the end of the project. It was the only project that didn't get us progressively higher as the project moved forward. Yeah, what happened is the production company that actually made the show went bankrupt. The ah. ratings for the show were actually, they were about what uh, American Gladiators was doing. So Roller Games is is like a, it's like a roller skating thing, it's right? It's pro wrestling on roller skates. So, so there's like a there's like a course, like a, a circular course. It's not or a, a circular. It's a figure eight. Oh, it's a figure eight. Okay. So there's a figure eight course. You rollerblade around it. You yeah. you knock people off of yeah. it. And there's the wall. There's the they, they had all these crazy things on the show. Then they had like then, uh, they had bands that would play during intermission. Oh yeah. I actually, was, it, yeah, I've actually like seen a, really a few episodes back in the day. Which made you want to get a pinball machine, so that's why you got roller games. Actually, I didn't even realize it was the same show. <laughs> wow. You can tell that Steve was disappointed, though, right? Yes. He was disappointed, and... Oh, he said, you have a roller games. It isn't that bad, is it? No! But what they did with roller games, unfortunately, is they, they kind of stopped working on the software... It isn't overly polished. Yeah, so you can see that, like he said, it the, the wind came out of the sails. So. Yeah, they, they kind of just like, meh. And they cost cut the hell out of it. And what I mean by that is Roller Games probably has some of the most different versions of a game for the, the run it had. Like, how many how many did it have? We have the stats up on the screen here. They have 5,000 units. Yeah. I like how it's an even number. It's just like, uh, we, yeah. we had to do 5,000. We weren't going to do a single one more. So... Roller games early in the run, like the first hundred, couple hundred, they're actually diamond plate, which is a clear coat that Williams was experimenting with, which would go into production later on a Steve Ritchie game. But this was actually, I think, the first Steve Ritchie game where they used it at all. So like the first couple hundred had this clear coat on it. They started cost cutting. I know we mentioned like System 11s have tons of flashers. Well, they decided they'd save money if they removed all the flashers from the back box. So there's actually three different insert panels for roller games, depending on where it is in the run. The insert panel being where all the lights are mounted behind the back box, the thing that swings open. There's the original one that has all the flashers in it. Then there's a second one that has all the holes for the flashers, but there are no flashers. And then there's the third one that doesn't even have the hole for the flashers anymore. And they removed a bunch of flashers from the play field also. Again, all all cost-cutting. They removed the speaker panel... They removed the W's, the Williams logo, from the speakers, because I guess that was an extra cost, so it just has regular speaker grills. I know that I, I did a lot of research on roller games, and I actually have I have a really early one, probably one of the first couple hundred, so mine has all the flashers in it from the factory. It's like a hack and slash. It's just like, whatever I could pull out but of it. Basically, whatever they could pull out of it, they just stopped developing the software, just get it the hell out, and, and move on. Which is what they did. And that's a shame. It's it's from June of 1990. So we're into the 90s. We're in the 90s, but it's very 80s. It's trashy yeah. 80s all the way. <laughs> it's awesome. It's a, it's a System 11C standard body software by uh, Mark. Mark Penico. 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 
Penicho. If you want to tell us how to say the name right, to silverballchronicles at gmail.com and tell us how to say his name right. And he will come up again. Sound and music, Dan Forden. And uh, Pat McMahon did the artwork, who did uh, uh, Tale of the Arabian Nights, Dirty Harry, Popeye, and Junkyard, sort of that th- those WPC games. Mm-hmm. The biggest disappointment of roller games is the multi-ball start. Because you, you came off of Black Knight 2000, the greatest multi-ball start ever. And on roller games, when you lock a ball, it does super cool, like it dims the lights and does a bunch of cool flasher effects. So you're like, oh, this is going to be freaking awesome when multi-ball starts. And then you start multi-ball, and it just cuts all the lights on the game and just flashes on the uh, alphanumeric. Roller games, roller games, roller games, and then you just get all the balls. Like that's it, lame. Yeah, that's where you could tell that they were like, nope, that's it. That was one of the last things. If you finish sudden death, though, you get a crazy awesome light show. But that's like the only time you get one. So you know, during this time, licenses, this is licensing for some reason is such a strange thing in pinball. I don't get it. Yeah, they could have had American Gladiators, but they picked roller games. Data East, Gary Stern's new company with Joe Cam and Cow, around this time. They really see licensing as the go forward. And everybody else in the industry, Gottlieb, uh, Bally, or Bally Midway at the time, Williams, they're all kind of trying to figure out licensing. But one of the dangers of licensing is you could go American Gladiators or you go Roller Games. Both of them weird. Both of them, you know, not lasting very long in pop culture but yet one of them sort of lasted a few months and did fairly well the other one was just a train wreck american gladiators lasted way longer than a couple months it was on for years years still horrible yeah but didn't they like that in canada no i mean i guess I remember seeing it, but I remember being like, oh, this is kind of fun. Data East was smart, and they knew that their games were not as good as Williams, so they got licenses. So they had to figure out a way to make them better. Yep, and that's how you make them better. You slap something like Star Wars on it, boom, it's better. (sighs) Yeah, I I mean, I kind of like roller games, the game, because it is so obnoxiously 80s, right? It's, It's almost like those System 80B era games. They're just... They're just, they just ooze 80s like you would not believe. But it's Steve Ritchie, and it has a third flipper and a magnet that will catch it and feed it to that third and flipper. And it has the Picard maneuver. This is his, it has second, that side ramp. his second game that he did the left orbit to the upper right flipper up the ramp. So we, we should count. We should keep a count between episodes two and three. So that's two if you're, if you're writing them down at home. That's right. If I could get... A roller games i would be pretty pleased i think i would be pretty happy because it's not an outrageously priced game it's still a system 11 game it screams 80s pinball it's kind of fun it's got that stereotypical 80s guy in a jean jacket muscle up fighter guy on the play field not even muscle they're on roids they're ridiculously over large yeah, it's got the 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 lady roller games people, and yeah. they're in their yeah, like really bright. The twins were actually on the show. It was supposed some of them were supposed to be people who were actually on the show. Oh, yeah. Well, there you there, there you, you go. go. That's something. Well, Steve Steve once asked what he would have liked to have made roller games theme wise, and he said the beige knight. You know, he's a good guy. He doesn't want to start trouble. He's happy. He's baking cookies tonight. Thus showing once again how much he hates that game. I know yeah. he hates it. I bet you his high standards really, um, I think they really hurt him, right? Like, he seems like the kind of guy, I don't think he's a perfectionist, 
but I think he likes to, to win. I think he likes awesome things. I think he likes excitement. One thing is that roller game song in there, right? Like you could tell that's a Steve Ritchie game, especially after Black Knight, right? Yeah. Well, that's, that song is actually from the show. Oh my God. Rock, rock and roller. Oh yeah. That game, that game is just a train wreck. And the roller games, like when you get into multi-ball, that's from the show. Roller games, roller games, roller games. Okay, I think people are sick of roller games at this point. One other thing, just in closing, the play field has like thermos and Pepsi. Yeah, probably one of the last times. Yeah, the speaker panel has all these advertisements, all these different products on it. Slice, I think, is on there. It's like that would be the worst part is if, if a repro company wanted to repro reproduce that play field to, oh, to save a, a bunch of machines it's never going to happen no i'm trying to remember is a lot on the play field i thought it was just on the speaker panel i'd have to go downstairs and some of it's it on the play field because it's got those inserts right it's got those inserts in the middle of the play field i thought they were all for the different um teams like team thrash the violators and they had great <laughs> names like oh they just it's so trash are you telling me it. are you telling me that this machine didn't sell <laughs> oh, i love it i'm sorry so if you're following at home on your IPDB database, you're probably thinking we're going to talk about Terminator 2 next. However, to do a correct timeline, we must say the actual next game that Steve Ritchie was going to do after Roller Games was going to be another sequel. Yes, he decided to slack off again. <laughs> it was going to be Getaway High Speed 2. And an opportunity just falls from the sky could not turn down which was basically williams got the terminator 2 license and steve was completely on board but here's where it gets interesting for roller games his programmer was mark who we can't say his last name right penacho they had a major falling out and they were not on speaking terms not on speaking terms can you imagine it was bad enough that i wouldn't talk to the man enter dwight sullivan Mm -hmm. who would end up being steve's main programmer for Probably most of the rest of his Williams run and a good portion of his uh, Stern run. Yeah, the only person that can uh, separate angry arguments, Steve, with regular Steve and reconcile those at the end of the day. Yeah, and so they got the Terminator 2 license, which that was a big deal. This machine, this is a machine that I that I want. And it drives me crazy that they made so many and the price has continued to rise and rise and rise for this machine. Really? How many? How much are they now? In Canada, these things are selling for five thousand really? loonies. Mine was like fourteen, fifteen hundred. But that's it. Orig- originally, when I got it, I don't have it anymore. But I saw one in Canada. I want to say last year for about three thousand U.S. dollars, and I was like, "Ooh, man, that's a way too much." Now they're like thirty six, thirty seven hundred U.S. Which is like, and it just keeps escalating and it's driving me crazy because man, I want one of these machines, but I'm not paying that much. Not doing it. This is the, this is the machine run from my childhood. So I used to travel every, uh, multiple times every summer from my province of New Brunswick. There was, uh, the Island of Prince Edward Island, which is just one of the most beautiful places in the world. It's a, a vacation, just Mecca. It is amazing. Now you can take a bridge. You just drive on a bridge and you pay a toll. It is the longest bridge over frozen water in the world. At the time, you used to take a ferry. You get on a ferry and you go. And of course, on a ferry, you'd have a cafeteria and an arcade to keep the kids away. And there was a Terminator 2 on that machi- on that boat. And man, oh man, I love that game. Just love This just bubbles with nostalgia for me. This is the game that I remember. 
I would drop quarters into it. I'd pull the gun handle trigger. I double flip that machine, just smash those buttons until the ball drained out. You can still hear the match screen sequence, the the crushing noise that the thing would do to come up with the number. Do you have a memory like that for T2, Ron? Yes, it was uh, in the bowling alley that I, it, it's probably one of the first times I played pinball, but I was just playing it to kind of appease my dad because he wasn't going to play me in any of the video games because that would have been painful for him. So they had a Terminator 2. And that's that's the first time I ever saw it. That machine was everywhere. Oh, yeah. Everywhere. And they also had the arcade Terminator 2 with the stand-up uh, with the guns. And you yeah. Shoot the, the sh- Williams got both licenses. Their Midway, their video game division, they did the video, the gun game. And then the pinball division did the pinball machine. Everything associated with that movie made just tons of money. That was so huge. There was nothing bigger. I remember, I remember seeing the coming attraction for that. It was one of the coming attractions. I went to see a movie. I don't remember what the movie was, but that was one of the coming attractions. And it was the uh, trailer where they just show him building Arnold. You know, they show yep. the uh, endoskeleton, then they put the skin on him, then he looks at the camera, and it just, you know, goes to black and says, Terminator, geez, this summer. And he says, I'll be back. And I'm like, mm. oh, my God, this is going to be huge. Even the Terminator, the original one, was awesome. I actually like the original Terminator more. I'm in the minority. Ooh, you're a weird fella. Terminator 2, we'll get into that in a minute. But one of the reasons uh, I love YouTube is that you can find some really cool stuff. And we're getting into this 1990s era of pinball, and there's some really cool stuff. I'm going to throw this up in our show notes. You can see the original distributor sizzle reel or sales pitch. Yeah. From the VHS tapes that they would send out. William started doing these, I think in 91, somewhere around. I think Party Zone might have been one of the first ones they did. And they got more and more heavily produced as they went along. Yeah, they realized that these VHS yeah. cassette tapes of, of pitching the game would actually sell the game just as much as going to a, a show and, and, and sort of schmoozing folk. But the crazy thing about it is the game came out at the same time the movie came out. Yeah. That never happens anymore. Like, they had access to everything as the movie was being made, as, as we're going to talk about when they get Arnold to do the voice, the call outs, he was in his trailer on set doing the call outs. There is a lot of risk to that. If you ask me like nowadays, uh, Stern particularly is very risk adverse, right? They are they, not taking yeah, any, they will only do a movie if, if it's already been successful, like the second one's coming out, like guardians of the galaxy. It's based on the yeah. first movie, but they waited till the second movie to play it safe, etc. But I mean, this is an exception. This was James Cameron, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Terminator 2. This couldn't possibly suck. It yeah. just, there's no way. There's no the, way. The YouTube pitch video for this, I've included in the show notes. Steve Ritchie has one proper mullet in oh, this thing, yeah. man. It is business in the front. It is party in the yeah. back. And he's wearing a suit and he's describing all of the innovations and features within within Terminator 2. And it is awesome. It is so funny and so cool to sort of see this. And it's it's like peak prime Steve Ritchie, right? Like this, he is he is loving showing that machine off. It is cool. Let's bring it, let's bring it into the movie here. So we'll give some people some context. Man, this Terminator franchise has been a train wreck since you know, after, after T2, it's just been a bit of a mess. Mm, the, the movies don't exist. 
in my world. Right. It's, it's, it's a whole thing. And, and I think that's a shame because there's a lot of people coming into the hobby into their, you know, maybe, maybe early thirties, mid thirties, the, you know, the twenties, the sort of the newer generations coming into maybe tournament play. They don't know the phenomenon that was the Terminator two world. So it was written, directed, and produced by James Cameron in 1991. And this is well before Titanic, well before the Avatar series, but it's like everything. Yeah, when he made good movies. Everything that James Cameron touches like turns to gold. And this is really the first one where when he touched it, it turned to like triple platinum. It was, it was amazing. Starring Arnold Schwarzenegger, the biggest action film star at the time. He's doing Predator. He's doing, he's, he's just, he's just the biggest star ever at the time. Like it is, it is him and Sylvester Stallone are the biggest stars in action. Um, and, uh, who's the other guy? Bruce Willis. Die Hard. Bruce Willis. It's like the three of them, man. If you're making an action movie, those are your three guys. So this is the follow up to the 1984 film, The Terminator, which is an awesome movie. You should definitely see that one. It has a $102 million budget, the most expensive film ever made at the time. It did $520 million at the box office. Now, if we, if we put that into today's uh, dollars, so if you, you use inflation, that's a billion dollars. So that's basically a Marvel or Star Wars movie kind of box office, but like 30 years ago, right? Like it's a, this is huge. It was for the longest time, one of the top three movies of all time and adjusted for inflation is still amongst the top earners. And it has a 93% Rotten Tomatoes score. So it is actually a good movie based on the critics. So 7% of the people are dumb. Okay. Mm -hmm. I, this movie, I used to pretend I was a Terminator. I used to play Terminator with my friends. We used to play the video game. I had this probably a canadian knockoff terminator movie somewhere there's yeah yeah where he's he's just like a lumberjack and he's just walking around looking for a molson so so uh come with me if you want the stats it's space time travel sci-fi war theme july of 1991 so 12-ish months after roller games it's the it's a wpc which the big difference here we're talking totally new board set but it has a dot matrix or dmd display totally new board set developed primarily by larry demar so we'll bring him up again Yep. Standard Body sold 15,202 units. Music by Chris Graner, some of the best music he's ever done. Software, Dwight Sullivan. Nobody's ever heard of that guy. And Art by Doug Watson again. Killer backlass. Oh my goodness. Iconic backlass. Which you have to thank Arnold Schwarzenegger for that. He just wanted his face. Because the original backlass, they had like his face. They, he, did, he demanded he had to be in sunglasses on the backlass. So, so he had to rejigger the thing around. If you remember, like the, there's a full, there's a Terminator endoskeleton. Then he's half Terminator, you know, half human looking, and then he's human looking with the sunglasses. Yeah, got to keep it on brand. Mm -hmm. Let's go through again a bunch of firsts. This guy, he just comes up with stuff. It's amazing. The first machine with an auto plunger, and it also had like a gun handle, which was pretty cool, right? So instead of a plunger, a high quality gun handle, you could kill someone with that thing. It is so high. That thing is like a tank. Chrome. Oh yeah, you could grab that thing, pick the whole game up, and it'll be like no problem. Oh man, awesome! Because I remember that. That was one thing when I was a kid. I was I would grab that thing, pull that trigger. I didn't have to pull a thing. I didn't have to. Oh man, it was so cool. It's the first. It's I mean, it's the first machine with a fan. 
quote unquote air quotes. I don't want to say Steve Ritchie invented the fan layout. No, he perfected the fan layout. But but this th- this the reason I have the sort of the the air quotes and the question mark here in our show notes is because it is perfected here. Everything is pushed way back. It's left to right. It's combos, it's repeats, it's, it's an orbit. Like it is perfected. He might not have been, you know, if you know who had the quote unquote first fan layout, you know, I'd love to know over at silverballchronicles@gmail.com, and I'll put that in our next episode. But I mean, I think this is the first fan layout. And this is the first, he's starting to repeat at this point. Mm-hmm. Is the three bank in the center, just like Flash, and the five bank on the left, just like Flash. And also, just like roller games, five bank on the left, three bank in the center. Yeah, he's kind of falling into he's, kind of... He's, he's going to start getting into a certain groove. He's going to start using reusing his elements. Yeah, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Mm-hmm. But that causes some issues when you've been in the industry so long. It's the first machine to feature a cannon or an on-playfield ball-launching mechanism. Then that's a cannon, I guess, because technically you have things like taxi... Big guns. They use catapults to fly the ball through the air. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, the it's a thing that moves that shoots the ball as opposed to yeah catapult. Or... And we're not including hyperball, another game he did, which right. literally had a cannon that fired balls. Right, which is probably the same mech. First game with a video mode. Thank you, Dwight Sullivan. Yeah, no, because it's Dwight Sullivan and he loves video modes. Uh, he's got a series of firsts. It's very very cool. But I would say one of the greatest, if not, maybe it's the second greatest story in pinball history. Uh, the high-speed story is pretty great. I think the comedy in the branding and licensing adventure that was Terminator 2 and getting Arnie's voice in here is probably one of the greatest ever. They went all in here with this one, right? They had noticed what was going on with the data east of the world. The branding meant a lot. Chris Graner says, What Roger and our people offered, and and Roger, I would assume he means Roger Sharp, who was the head of licensing for Williams, what Roger Sharp and our people offered, Carol Co. Pictures and Arnold, I don't even remember. It wasn't about money. It was more about, let's teach Hollywood about another version of the product placement. That's all we were offering. A pinball shop didn't have more to offer than some sort of cachet. Yeah, it's all about, it's all about, let's, let's build some relationships, right? Let's, let's kind of, let's get your face on a pinball machine. Let's get you in every pizza shop. Let's get, you know, let's get that branding out there in another way. Now the branding is very different, right? The branding now is how do I sell the machine? I need to have branding on it. Where back then it was like, how can we sort of marry the two and get your product, Mr. Movie Maker out in the field? I'm sure the guys at Guardians of the Galaxy and Marvel don't care about having a pinball machine as much as I, David Dennis, care about having a, you know, a branding of Guardians of the Galaxy in my house. There's also a DMD, but it's the first DMD with an asterisk. It's the first Williams DMD. Checkpoint actually had the first DMD. Daddy East beat him. It had the little tiny dot matrix. But it was, it was so not even cool it was so small it was so small it was like half the totally height it was basically alphanumerics really if you ask me terminator 2 was the first williams game they designed with the dot matrix display but had such a long uh development time gilligan's island beat it out 
as the first one actually released with a DMD. So, you know, we're all about sort of asterisks because we would say, this is the first one with a DMD. And somebody would be like, well, technically, uh, the um, Gilligan's Island came out uh, three months before that. And it, but yeah, I get it was in production earlier than this, but this was actually developed before that. So asterisks is all around. And since they were developing the game while the movie was being made, if you've watched Terminator 2, it's based around the the T-1000, the new Terminator made out of liquid metal. So the T-1000 was not included in the artwork of the game, except for a small image of Robert Patrick, the guy who played him, uh, because of the pre-release secrecy of the movie. The character was only included in the display animation because when the DMD programming was finalized, the liquid metal character was already public knowledge. There was nothing cooler than the T-1000. No. Man, it's, it was CGI so good. still holds up to this day, and that movie was made 30 years ago. And it was so good, and the character was played so perfect that they, to, even to today, 30 years later, are struggling to try to come up with a cooler Terminator. <laughs> Look, it's brutal. I think we're fanboying a little. Oh, I love going a little on this determiner. This weekend, <laughs> we're gonna wa- I'm watching. Hold on, we gotta watch it again. Yes. Oh, so good. So let's talk about that cannon. So the first, you know, oscillating, moving cannon. Yeah, Steve Ritchie says the cannon idea I had an Atari. That's a long time. I just didn't have the vehicle to make it happen. It's a simple thing. It's a kickback mounted to a motor that pivoted back and forth, and that literally all it is. It's literally the kickback me- mechanism just moving so people talk about scott denisi and his denisi lock and tna about taking stand-up targets and stacking balls on the on the on those targets and just how like you're taking something and changing it and converting it into something totally different so steve ritchie uses a kickback on the out lane of firepower and then he takes that kickback in f14 and says well what if i what if i turn it and face it towards the flippers and now he's like, well, what if I just put it on a mount and rotate it and shoot? Like he's taking something that's been done before and just changing it into something new. So about the gun handle, Steve Ritchie said one time, <clears throat> I'm going to try this. That gun handle? Yeah, I don't know. I, I own a 45 and I like shooting. We just we just put it on. People like to shoot guns. Yes, they do. Yeah. Being, you know, being a Canadian, I, I mean, I kind of get it. But you guys, you guys love your guns. Arnold Schwarzenegger versus Williams. Arnold was really tough to get on board to do the callouts. And if you go back to the Head to Head Pinball Podcast, episode 71, Chris Graner, the the legend of sound, tells an amazing story. This was really James Cameron's big breakout movie. Like he did some awesome, awesome movies. He did Aliens, and now T2 will just launch him into space where he's where he is now. This was a juggernaut project. Arnold who was at the point making successful movies over and over again. He was making a lot of money for his movies. He, he was really a celebrity at this point, but this was really sort of on the, the upswing of his celebrity. So he was in a totally different category at the time. And uh, Chris Graner would say, Arnold was practically the first big celebrity that we had to deal with. We wanted to go and get stuff from the movie, but the movie hadn't been released, so we couldn't go in and get the dialogue from the movie. We had to write the script and assume we get Arnold to speak it. And they were like, wait a minute, Arnold's going to have to go to a recording session for you guys? And we were like, yeah. We were ballsy enough or naive enough to think we could even ask that question and not get laughed off the lot. They are like, give us an example of all the speech. Oh, like a sound alike to do it and send it over to us. So we send the tape off to them and a couple days later we hear back and Arnold's like, not only am I not going to do this, you're not using a sound alike. 
we're not doing this. You're not putting my voice in this game. <laughs> Steve Ritchie looks at Roger Sharp and says, if we don't get his voice, then what are we buying exactly? And Roger Sharp says, let me do something. Let me pull a rabbit out of my hat. The producer talks to Arnold and says, we'll come to your trailer. We'll do it on a break. It'll take you 15 minutes. It'll be easy. Just do this. It's good PR on the film, and it's good for us. So Arnold says, oh, okay. So they did it, and they did the recording in Arnold's trailer. He did every line twice. Everything sounds like the Terminator because he was the Terminator. So Chris, so the the back and forth between sort of Chris Graner and his and his engineering team in L.A. doing the shooting is 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 epic, right? Like the 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 summary that we just did here does not do that story justice. Go back to that head to head pinball podcast. It's in our show notes. The way Chris Graner tells it is a riot. He is so excited and funny, and in fact. This story is where the so-called profanity ROM set for T2 comes from. Yeah, there is a profanity ROM profanity ROM set where if you hit it in the one scoop, one of the awards that comes up is a certain quote. Chris Graner says the capper to the whole thing was, when they're done recording it, all the call-outs, he asks Arnold Schwarzenegger, okay, that's it, anything else? Arnold says, yeah then gets completely out of character and leans down to the mic, and his voice drops a perfect fourth and says, Fuck you, asshole. <laughs> we're all sitting in the studio listening to this tape, and I come back to us, and we're like, yes, it was epic. Arnold said, F you, asshole, directly to me. Directly to me, Chris Graner. My everlasting gift to pinball. <laughs> so he was so excited to tell that, to tell that part of the story, that, that you could tell that it was such a pain in the ass and they persisted and were really annoying to the point where Arnold had to do this recording and he probably didn't want to do it. But what's funny is Mr. Schwarzenegger would end up in a lot of other machines and he did yeah. all the callouts for those yeah, machines. Yeah, when he did Terminator 3, he was he, he was very accommodating. Like, do you want me to do any more? you want me to do any more? And, and he was also in uh, Last Action Hero at Daddy East. His career wasn't in the same spot, though. How true is that? So the invention of the video mode, the video mode is basically a mini video game in the pinball machine on the dot matrix display, which is controlled with the flipper buttons. And in some cases, the trigger or in some games, it was a reward or a mystery award, which breaks up the play field gameplay. Some people would say that it's actually in the machine to counter the, the attack that video games head on pinball. Pinball had been trying for years to sort of meld play field and video game together, which has been uh, horrible, very, very bad. But they've sort of at least discovered now where it's a bit of a hybrid, and it seems to have worked. Although some people, not a big fan of video mode. How do you feel about video mode? I tolerate them. They're good ones, and they're bad ones. What's the best video mode? I always loved Fishtails, just hitting the jet skier and hearing him scream. Yeah. Ah, ah. or the shooting the wolves in uh dracula yeah the dracula one's pretty cool i you know what i don't really mind the one in t2 actually it's pretty simple it's move the cursor left move the cursor right let's see worst video modes i mean the one in game of thrones i played that once that was not good i really hate the one in star wars flying the millennium falcon oh that's okay <sighs> i don't mind that at all you got to know when to thrust and when not to thrust. That's what she said. This play field design, is it really the beginning of sort of the high flow era? Like, 
he's he's had flow before, but he hasn't had high. First time he used the payback time feature, which is hitting the alternate alternating ramps because the each ramp would feed back to the flipper, and then you could hit the opposite ramp. Yeah, so you crisscross so back and forth, crisscross back and forth, and payback time, and it was and it was used in that game, and he would use it again in T three. He would use it for no apparent reason and no fear, which we'll talk about. It's in there payback time, but that that's major flow, and to the point where if I play any game where I can do that with the ramps, it just I think of payback time. I'm like, oh, you it, you could do a payback time thing. Because other games had the same feature, but they would call it something else. Like uh, Johnny Mnemonic, it's called Yakuza Strike, but it's literally, it's payback time. It's the same. There's games that have that. I like Fishtails has kind of the same sort of Yeah, they have the mod. Yeah, doesn't Metallica do that too, I think? Yes. If you go back and forth. They it's have a lot a, tighter shot on that level. Yeah, it's a lot tighter shot, but it's it's the same concept. T- T2 was like the first game I can think of that did that. And did it so well. Mm. Mm. Anywho... If you want to sell me a very, very nice T2 and you want to sell it really, really cheap because you feel bad that I don't have one, shoot me an email at silverballchronicles at gmail.com. 1992, it's time to get back behind the wheel. Very quickly, the turnaround here is into the next game, which is the Getaway High Speed 2. Which he had begun working on before Terminator 2, but now we're back to it. Yes. Solid state WPC standard body it sells thirteen thousand two hundred fifty nine units, which is which is huge. Another hit. Sa- sound once again Dan Forden, software Dwight Sullivan, and Doug Watson did the translite. Mark Sprenger does the playfield. Yep, duplicating his playfield artwork style from the original high speed. Listener to the show Rockford Replay from Pinside. That's a weird name. Rockford Reap. So his last name is Replay? Maybe it's Replay. Okay. In 1996, we traveled to West Bend, Wisconsin for a wedding. After the wedding at the hotel, I was combing the hallways in search of ice and vending machines. Walking past an open doorway, I peeked in and caught a glimpse of the getaway. As a car guy, I stopped, backed up, and walked into the room for a closer look. Oh, police chase, streetlight, and a supercharger. I only played two credits. Back home, that game was on my mind. Something about the gameplay, shifting gears, supercharger, and running from the cops. Over two decades later, a getaway pops up for sale, and it's located three blocks from where I'm employed. I'm bringing this one home. I actually felt like a loose end in my life had been resolved. I'm very thankful Steve created this game, and even luckier to have one. And you have one of these? Ah, yes. And you love it. My dad loves it even more. Love it. And it plays ZZ Top. Yes. LaGrange. LaGrange. Which is awesome. Yeah. So Steve invents another toy. One of the coolest toys of all time. One of the coolest toys, Supercharger. Which, the funny thing is, if you watch any of those promotional videos we were talking about earlier for the distributors, um, they say, like, how great a toy it is because it has no moving parts. Which is not true. Lies. (laughs) Lies. It has a diverter. If it had no moving parts, it would go around the Supercharger forever. (laughs) Which, by the way, is super fun. Uh, It is. And it, it is cool because it, it really it just has the one moving part and all the rest is just magnets and it's integrated into the game very well. I had a friend of mine, uh, Sean, he had one of these and you just, you know, you shoot it up for a jackpot. It goes up into a ramp, which then kind of closes 
and then it gets shot around in a circle really quick. And it's got this like weird, it's got this like weird grinding noise, the way the ball sort of shoots around because of this magnet. So the magnet pushes it around this thing and it goes, Yep, there's three magnets that are positioned so you can't see them. They're covered up by that plastic piece with the three flashers on it. It's like an engine. Yeah, and then they have just the one little diverter that either makes it go around or makes it come out of the supercharger. Sometimes on mine, it'll go too fast, and the diverter will be too slow. It'll just hit the diverter and then come down the ramp and drain. It's such a cool toy, and it's it's used so perfectly. It's used well, and it will move the entire machine. The entire Mm -hmm. machine will move. With the supercharger. It's it's coded so well. And this is, I think, Dwight, one of the best things Dwight has ever done is that very quickly, a player that kind of doesn't know much can toss it into the supercharger. It goes around like three times and then it comes out of the supercharger like the, the ramp pops up again and then it kind of zips around. Anybody can do that so easily, just kind of quickly. So awesome. Because immediately you're like, oh my God, this is the coolest toy I've ever seen. And you don't have to have a lot of skill. It's not a bash toy. It's so unique. It's so cool. And like my first reaction to that supercharger was just like, this is awesome. Like right out of the gate. I'm pretty sure that's exactly what I said. So how about Steve Ritchie on the back glass here? Yeah. Yep. Doug Watson put him on the back glass. So he is driving the car. So you said there's some issues to the art on this game. You have Doug Watson's doing the translite. So you have Steve Ritchie is driving the car. Then on the play field, it's a blonde guy. And, and the cops are like, he's back or I'm back or whatever, whatever it says. And then on the DMD display, when you see the driver, which is supposed to be you, as like a crew cut. Yeah. So it's not quite. Yeah. The cop is there. He's back. And, and the driver's there. Deja vu. So cool. There's some really, uh, I think unique pits bits to this. So you could see that it is, it is high speed too. It's the getaway, but it is high speed too. It has a lot of the same, uh, unique, interesting pieces to it. It has the lightning fast, uh, orbit loop. It's got the third flipper into a repeatable shot. Um, it's a top down look of a car chase on a highway. Uh, it has stoplights, so the, the stand-up targets are red, yellow, green. It has a stoplight. You run the stoplight. You start a multi-ball. It has the RPMs. But one thing that is so cool about this game is he's gone and one-upped the gun handle launcher. And it, it, it is now a gear shift that you flick up and down, like the gear shift of a car. Which actually uses two switches. Hmm. There's up and down. So you'll see a lot of getaways. They'll have like a test report and it'll say that one of the switches isn't working because everyone always shifts up. Yeah, that's the one that When you walk up, you shift up. No one ever shifts down. So every once in a while, you'll get like, shift down hasn't been hit in so many games. It may be broken. The original high speed in our Python Angelo episode, we spoke about how Python, you know, drew him drawing like a uh, driving a Maserati, a very fancy sort of car. This one, he's very much in a Lamborghini. There's some really um, interesting uh, features about this uh, game as well, because it did get costed. There were some things that were taken out of this machine. And one of them was a prototype mountain, which was mounted in the back of the game. Yep. So you can actually get 
uh, these mountains now by the mod makers of pinball that they've taken a 3d printer and they've created a mountain that kind of sits back in that right corner. I actually have a mountain in mind. Does it make it, does it make it look cool? It's not from one of the newer modders. I actually don't like some of the newer ones that were out though. The one, the people who made mine are not around anymore, mm-hmm. which I found out because it came with instructions that thank God I printed, because if you try to go to the website, the website's not there anymore. Oh, no. It was supposed to be a mountain there, and you can see it in the actual DMD. Like, when you drive in, when you hit the ball into the one saucer, the DMD shows you going into a tunnel. Yes. You're supposed to be going into a tunnel. So, yeah, that was costed out. There's also a plastic on the top of the supercharger on the far right, which keeps the ball from sort of popping out. And it has a mountain printed on it as well. Yep. So you can sort of see the idea was, but it was costed out. One of the one of the great things in, in this hobby, especially now with, with 3D printing and all that stuff, are the mod makers are able to sort of complete the vision of the pinball machine or hide wires that were normally there. Another really, really cool mod is that you can get the Donut Heaven mod. You don't like that one? No, I don't like that one. There's like a ball lock on the right side and it's, it's, in my opinion, very ugly the way that the, the ball comes up and locks into this thing and it just sits there. Now you can get a cover or in some people you can get a 3d printed house or even just stickers for that thing. And it looks like a, like a, like a Dunkin' Donuts or a Tim Hortons, which I think is awesome. Yep. It's donut heaven. And they show all the cops hanging out there. Get it? Nope. Nope. You don't get it? No, it, no, it, nope. That's an American thing, I guess. Cops love donuts. No, Canadian, Canadian police up here. They're just, you know, Playing soccer out there with the kids and always exercising. So you have the Mounties, we have donuts. There are two versions of this game. So the manufacturer flyer shows the first version. So if you look on IPDB, you can see the first version in the flyer. But there's two versions. So some of the notable differences. Yeah, the first, there's very few of the first version. It might be only 100. I I think I've only seen one of them. See, uh, the first version is five. Five gear inserts do not have the curved text above them saying red line RPM to collect gear value. And the numbering below them is first, second, third, fourth, fifth without the word gear appearing on each one. The second version has the curved text and the original numbering includes the word gear, such as first gear, second gear, etc. First version has the word supercharger in front of the supercharger ramp entrance. The second version does not. Uh, this one added ball deflector to rear glass channel on later versions to prevent air balls from falling into the cabinet. That's actually not on a lot of the the second version. That was added during the run because the ball fly off the supercharger, go over the back panel, and end up in the cabinet. <laughs> See, barcode added to the left return lane under the diamond coat on later version. The first version used a it used standard like smaller coil, like the kind you would see in a kickback for the launch, like the kind that was probably in a Terminator 2. But it just wasn't powerful enough to get all the way around the loop. So they used a much larger, like a flipper-sized coil. Uh, the first, yeah, the first version had a single playfield hinge. So it had the old hinging playfield. So you couldn't pull the playfield out. To imagine trying to work on the supercharger. That would have been a pain. The early version also had two extra GI lights on the right side of the playfield, but they were removed to accommodate the new hinge system, which then William started using for all the games. The interesting thing is Adam's family that came out after Getaway has the pivoting playfield, not the new hinging system because their development cycle was so long. Oh, interesting. The first version cabinet front decal, yeah, shows headlights of the car from the back glass instead of saying the Getaway. And really you don't want a first run one. You, you don't want the original. It's not the it's not the more fancy collectible one. Yeah, no, well, there's hardly any of them 
and you don't want the hinging playfield. You want the, the, the new playfield mount, which was one of the best ever made. That's why everyone ripped it off or <laughs> tried to rip it off. Hmm. You, basically, you can just lift the playfield up, actually pull it out, and then put it up. But allowed you to get to all the stuff in the back of the game. Which will be a big deal later on as Williams started putting more and more crap in the back of the games. Yeah, once things get a lot more complicated, being able to get under and out of them. And uh, one thing that Stern did is in a costing effort sort of around the, the financial crisis was they put those pegs in instead of service rails. Yeah, around, I think, Iron Man, NBA Iron Man. Iron Man might have been the first. I think, I think Iron Man had the pegs. And then they did the deal where like the pros would have pegs but the premiums would have rails and then they finally like, no, everything gets a rail again. Yeah. And, and that'll be the first to go if something else happens uh, in the industry. But uh, you can see that in this time of, you know, they're, they're, they're not so much costing um, things out of the game that make the operator's life easier. So if it's something that they can, like, for example, let's take the mountain out of the game and make sure that we change this hinge system, right? If it makes the operator's life easier, they're willing to sort of put that money in. Pinball's a business, and sometimes items get cut from the final thing to cost save, and that's just how it goes. We, we're going to do a whole Dwight Sullivan episode. I've got more stuff on Terminator 2. I've got more stuff on the getaway from Dwight Sullivan's perspective. So I want to move on to the next thing here. Uh, 1993, Steve Ritchie. He's voiced many things in his career, tons of his games, tons of other things. But one of the most famous things he ever did were the callouts for Mortal Kombat. As Shao Kahn. If you took Terminator 2 in the amount of nostalgia around that, Mortal Kombat, Mortal Kombat 2, it's like 1A, 1B. Like Mortal Kombat was so huge when I was a kid and such an awesome big deal. When I found out three years ago that Steve Ritchie was the voice of Mortal Kombat Shao Kahn, I almost crapped my pants. Fight. Fatality. Flawless victory. And if you get a couple of drinks into Steve, he'll do that for you, just, just like he was sitting in the studio from before. It's amazing. So do you have any favorite Steve Ritchie call-outs throughout his career? Anything that Skull says. Shoot the rap for more time and bigger points. We'll get to that in just a minute. Um, anything is a bad guy. Anything laughing at me. Uh, oh, like if we want to go... Uh, one of my favorite early ones, I probably would have said this on the first episode, uh, Black Knight, if you hit the Magna save too late and it drains, he just literally laughs at you. The callouts, I think, for Sword of Rage are pretty amazing. Oh, uh, they are. Because he's had like 30 years of thinking about what the what the Black Knight would say or do in the next game, and, and it, <laughs> it really came out well. Give me your money. Or stand up and fight. The intro, the multiball. Stand up and fight. Now, allegedly, Steve Ritchie came up with the name Mortal Kombat, and it was originally just called Combat before his suggestion of Mortal Kombat. Now, I don't know how true that is. I've heard that. I thought I heard it the other way. It was going to be called Mortal, and he added the Combat. So that's funny. So there you go. So there you go. We've reconciled that Steve Ritchie was somehow involved in the naming of the game, but nobody's really sure how. Fight. <laughs> uh, now we've get to move on to something pretty pretty unique and pretty cool and we're gonna go where no pin has gone before except uh those two other machines that did star trek as well heaviest complex machines ever devised yeah it's it's time to call steve ritchie i think at this time you know the king of the license right he's the king of flow but man he is the king of the license at the moment and he's got some big named licenses 
And if you wanted to sell 10,000 units, you put Steve Ritchie on your license. And it might not have worked uh, later on in his Stern career, uh, but I'll tell you what, Star Trek The Next Generation, man, Star Trek was huge in the 90s. Huge in the 90s, especially The Next Generation. It was all of a sudden now you're getting conventions and, and they had their own thing at Las Vegas. They did movies Potato chip bags had little trading cards in them. Star Trek was massive. And they put Steve Ritchie to make the next generation. Yeah, the Star Trek Next Gen license was difficult to get. In the first meeting they had, Roger Sharp set up the meeting. They sat down with this, I guess, woman who was in charge of the the license. And they told them, no phasers, no shooting, no fighting. You can't do anything like that. Yeah, you don't want anything that makes the show fun. And Steve Ritchie was like, you know, I, because I, I, he was a fan of the show, and he's like, I'm not going to make it space pirates from effing hell. That was his exact quote. Nice. So it, the, the meeting did not go well. Roger Sharp seed if he could salvage something. Uh, they ended up getting a hold of someone else in the licensing department instead of the initial person they talked to that were much more uh, friendly. And they were like, sure, sounds good. You can you can really tell that Steve Ritchie will have some sort of vision, and he's he he is part of the licensing. Like he really he really is in there. Now he's not getting the license, he's not supporting license. But when somebody comes to him and says Star Trek: The Next Generation, he kind of says, "Okay, I need these elements," and he's part of negotiating those elements. So you can see that he's he's bought in to the Star Trek name and his vision. And if he can't get you know, phasers or aliens or, you know, fighting, you know, what else do you want for Star Trek? You didn't just play the game. You played the show. You ever watch next gen? Yeah. Did I ever, I was all in. That was my Star Trek. I mean, I watched the original show as a little kid, but definitely next gen was my, that's my show. I would watch the original series when I would come home from school. It was like Star Trek, the original series, or Batman 66, kind of on TV when I would come home as as reruns. Mm -hmm. Uh, I watched a lot of Next Generation. I enjoyed Deep Space Nine, but not to the level of Next Generation. But my my jam was really Voyager, um, because it fell within that sort of like 13, 14-year-old age, 12, 13, 14. But it was also sort of more action-y and more explosion-y stuff, which was pretty cool. And, of course, it had the Borg. Like, come on. Like the post-first uh, contact Borg. So, yeah, I was I was all in on Star Trek, for sure. Steve Ritchie would say that Star Trek The Next Generation was the greatest collaboration of talent on any game I ever did. More spectacularly talented people were involved than any other game. Great stuff. So, uh, all hands, prepare for stats. Make it so, number one. Uh, Space, sci-fi, Star Trek theme, November of 93, uh, Solid State, Williams WPC. Now, this is a DCS WPC system. Uh, It's a wide body, which we haven't seen Steve Ritchie do in a long time. What was the last wide body game he did, listeners? Do you remember from episode one? Did you say Stellar Wars? Ding, ding, ding. Correct. If you, if you answered that correctly, send us an email to silverballchronicles at gmail.com and we'll enter you into a secret draw for a prize, which we will reveal next month. 11,728 units. Uh, Dan Forden on music. Dwight Sullivan on software. He's, he's able to handle uh, Steve Ritchie, so they probably just keep feeding him to the lion. Poor Dwight. And Greg Ferreras 
on art. The first time Greg has worked with Steve. So this was part of Williams Bally Midway's super pin line of wide bodies. So what's a super pin? It's wider. They all of a sudden came up with this concept of retrying the wide body, right? The wide body became a big deal because Atari made them. And then everybody freaked out that they need to make this wide body in case it was the next greatest invention and they don't want to miss out. And then they kind of disappeared. And now they're back. Yeah, I'm trying to remember how much wider. These were not Paragon wide. I always go by the playfield glass. I think the standard playfield glass is 43 by 21. So 43 inches by 21. I think these were like 23 and three quarters or something. So as much wider, they were only like two and a half inches or so, maybe three at the most wider. Yeah, wide bodies, the ball tends to travel further. Like if you're shooting the far left, the far right, the, the very back of the play field in the corners, it, it the ball takes a little longer to get back there and it's kind of noticeable. It's not off-putting. It's not like, ugh, I'm never going to play that ever again, but it's it takes a little longer and you're kind of waiting for that ball to come back. A lot of people describe them as floaty, right? So the ball just kind of floats around. There's so much wide open space. Well, they haven't played any of those old sterns from one of our first episodes. Those wide bodies are that's, not floaty. That's right. And if you're keeping count, that's the fourth time Ron has tried to pump stern. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they got it going on. They, they they made the right choice. Stern made the right choice. They're, they're a little bit wider. They're not huge. And they also made various play field positioning that made it a lot better. You, uh, super pins are going to pop up in the Barry Ausler episode. They're going to pop up in our uh, Pat Lawler episode. You know, the, the Mark Ritchie one, whenever I you know, start writing something about him. But those, they were really popular at at this sort of 93 to like 95, right? Like all of a sudden it was like everything was a super pin. Yeah, it was Twilight Zone and the last one was, what was the last one? Is it Popeye? Yeah, Popeye. Popeye was I don't have it in front of me, but yeah. I mean, (laughs) the thing is, once again, we have the return of the Picard maneuver shot. Yeah, this is where it gets the name. The left orbit up to the upper right flipper. Up the ramp. He does it again. You're keeping count. You can just check that off again. Yep. Almost a bingo. People say this is like the most complicated machine ever built. What is a subway? Subway is just what it says. It's a way to get the ball from one area of the play field to the other, but underneath the game so you don't see it. Hence a subway. It's like it's 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 like a plastic habit trail it goes in a hole some coils kick it down and then it pops up somewhere else it's like magic and on star trek it is insane it has three large ball popper units each with a set of optos so it can detect more than one ball then it has a full subway system with two diverters and six balls three in the ball trough and then one in each of the three ball poppers so if you put six balls in the game and turn it on, it will fire three of the balls to the back, and you will literally hear the diverters activate, and you'll hear, you'll hear the balls load in each ball popper. Dwight Sullivan, he was on the Special When Lit podcast, which I'll include in our show notes, and he takes a lot, he's all about complexity, and he says that the complexity in this machine was more or less his fault. So I'm going to try to read this like Dwight Sullivan. I said to Steve, I said, I said, wouldn't it be great if, if the ball went down here and then, and then popped up over here and then it popped up over there or over there. Basically it was all my fault. It just kept popping up around. Does that sound like Dwight Sullivan? 
pretty much, yeah. Jerry Thompson is the main sound guy at Stern right now. He pretty much does just about every game's music at this point. And he's seems. And he's good. And uh, at a convention, he says he got Steve to sign his Star Trek Next Gen Translite. And Steve said, you have one of those? And I said, yeah. He said, does it work? He, he replied. And he said, yes, it does. And Steve said, oh, that's rare. Yeah. So that's like the joke. The joke. Yeah. Steve pretty much said the same thing to me when I said I owned it. So he uses that one a lot. When I went to go buy my uh, Simpsons pinball party, I went to a collector's home and he had a next gen and it was, it was just, it was beautiful. It's just a beautiful next gen. It had been powder coated and it was in wonderful shape. And I told him this story because I was doing this research for this episode. And I said, Hey, here's this story that I hear. And the joke that Steve Ritchie has is that it never works because it's too complicated. And buddy told me, Oh no, it works. Fantastic. It's great. It's no problem. And then he went to play it and sure as shit, the ball got stuck. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. And I felt so bad. I felt so bad that I told him this story. And then his, and then his Star Trek Next Gen just stopped working. <laughs> Biggest issue with Next Gen is just the sheer amount of optos, optic sensors the thing has. And if any of them are not working and it doesn't know where the balls are, you'll start getting the, the issue where it just keeps firing balls out. It gets confused. It ends up in, in permanent ball search. Producer of the show, Dennis Creasel, would say, this is the greatest sound package that has ever been made, ever, ever, ever. I don't know if sound package. It's the greatest speech package, just in fact that you have every cast member. Every single cast member. Every single one. And, and if you talked, if you told the Next Gen fan, like, we have every regular cast member, they'd be like, well, did you get Q? Did you get him? And it'd be, yes, we got Q also which would be John Delancey. It's like, holy crap, you did get everybody. Well, well except except Wesley, but, you know, he left by that time, so who cares? Yeah, who cares about Wesley? <laughs> who cares about Wesley, the stupid turtleneck? Shut up, Wesley, <laughs> as Captain Picard would say. One of the cool things, and, and very few people know this, each member of the cast that did the voiceovers, they each got a machine for doing the voiceovers. Yep. And most of them are were owned by collectors now. Yeah. So what they did is they had special voice ROMs in them with all of the outtakes from their speech. So if they were warming up their voice or they flubbed a word or they said something mm, funny, most of them were like, we will never surrender unless you pay us enough. Yeah, exactly. Things like that. There are those sound ROM chips are different in just those machines. They are outrageously collectible, in my opinion, if you can get one of those. Well, you can get the ROMs. They're freely available. Yeah, but if you can get the one, the machine that was actually from that individual. Uh, yeah, I know two that were sold. Beverly Crusher. I, I'm not going to, I don't remember their names. Beverly Crushers was sold to. It's McFadden. He's, 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 yeah, Gaze McFadden. Uh, to the, um, I think his name is Greg Colton. He's one of the Family Guy directors. He's on Pinside. He bought that one. I don't know if he still has it. And I know Worf sold his was on one of the final somebody. episodes of Canada's Pinball Podcast talking about that pin, I think. And he was on, um, and Worf sold his. Sorry, Worf. I, what, what's Worf's name? I know all the character names. I know the actual names. That's all that matters. Yeah. So Worf sold his also. So that's at least two, that's at least two that are owned by um, collectors now and not by the cast members. So Yeah. Was it Michael Dorn? Michael Dorn. Yeah. 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 And I don't think either of them ever. I know Gates McFadden's was just like in a box. He never like opened it. That's crazy talk. Like she would care though, really. Like, nah, she wouldn't care. What's better than just one oscillating cannon from Terminator Two? 
too. Now, I, I personally think that Steve Ritchie's standards might be too high. <laughs> he he always he will always find something with his machines that he wishes he could improve on. Well, I I agree with him in this case because Steve says the one thing I regret is the side arrangement, the slings. As soon as I made the decision to put the cannons on the slingshots, it changed the movement too much. Superman and Stellar Wars, he put those slings exactly where they would be on a standard body. This one, because he put those cannons on there uh, to shoot the ball, he had to move them out a little bit. Well, it's the shape of the skis, too. They're just a bizarre shape. So they it floats weird down there. And the anything going near the in-lane outlane is going for the outlane. Yeah, going- it just gets sucked in. It's like a yep. black hole. Plus, by default, the kickback doesn't start lit on default settings, which I never could understand. Yeah, that's dumb. That That's so weird, because he, he has it lit on almost every other game at Game Start, but not Star Trek. If we move on to that, I got some really great stories around uh, Star Trek The Next Generation, which I want to save for the Dwight Sullivan episode. But there's lots of really cool stuff, because... It's such an iconic machine. It's such a big deal in pinball that there's a lot of stories about about Star uh, Star Trek: The Next Generation that I wanna I wanna spread out. So we're moving into 1994. Let's face it, okay? Steve Ritchie is cooler than me, and I think he's cooler than most people. And on top of that, he actually is like a huge motocross fan. He's driven Porsches by getting caught by the police. He's met tons of celebrities. He had a mullet. Steve Ritchie is much cooler than I am, or ever will be. To make him even cooler, so if you watch the No Fear promo video, Steve goes into detail as to what was the inspiration between uh, the inspiration for the extreme No Fear pinball machine. He says, oh yeah, there's the missing fingertip. On Labor Day 1994, I lost my fingertip left ring finger in a weird dirt bike accident and went in the rear sprocket and snipped it off. Ow. Ow. Ah. I looped it on a cliff jump. It wasn't a flying W. I dropped straight down through the air and could not push the bike away from me. The bars were ripped from my hands when the bike and I landed. We slid down the face of the cliff together and I guess my hands were flailing around. Man, what a badass. Just that whole, that whole part, that whole quote. I'm like, man, he's so much cooler than me. I think they found the finger, but they couldn't reattach it. Yeah. My, my like, you know, story is the one time uh, I took off the treads on my, on my deck stairs because I, because the, the treads were, were sort of rotting a little bit and I took the, I took it off and then I realized the stringers or the, the runners underneath were all rotten and had to fall apart. And then I had to build deck stairs. That's about as exciting as my life gets here, man. Scintillating. Are you sitting on the edge of your seat? Actually, I'm standing right now. Man, you're so lucky. I had to stand, yeah. So hunched over. When we move into 1995, it's been 18 months since Steve Ritchie's super cool Star Trek The Next Generation. 18 months is a long time to go for Steve Ritchie before making a pinball machine, right? His, his, his next longest stint was really 10 years. And one of the reasons for that was... At the time, we get around 1995, he actually had the George Gomez role. That George Gomez currently has a stern pinball. He was he was basically head head of manufacturing or head of whatever it's called. So he was not doing games. So what happened is Williams had a very small little window in their production schedule where they didn't have any games that were going to be made. So to keep the factory moving, Steve came up with No Fear. 
in a very short period. It was no fear, dangerous sports. It's sports, extreme sports, and it's kind of a license. And it was his last good art package until Sword of Rage. <laughs> uh, May 1995. It is a WPC-S, 4,540 units. Dan Forden on uh, music and sound software by Matt Colary and art by Greg Ferreris. Now, Edward Partridge from Facebook, and you'll remember Edward because he's the one that hijacked our Steve Ritchie and Gottlieb System 1 poll. He says, no fear, you lost me on this one, Steve. So what's what's the deal with No Fear, Ron? It's actually a license, which I didn't even know. No Fear's t-shirts were popular in the, the mid-90s to early 2000s, and, and I did not know this. Shirts typically featured existential slogans or quotes that touted the virtues of extreme sports. Extreme! Common themes included fear of death, lack of laziness, contempt for social norms, and the law. And the other thing is, when he debuted this game at one of the trade shows, he did so riding in on a motorcycle. Of course he did, because Steve Ritchie is cooler than me. There's a video. He re- rides in on a dirt bike, comes in. They got the, the like a blanket, the, uh, not blanket. Well, yeah, blanket over the machine. He just pulls it like, there it is. And then he rides off. <laughs> you know, if I unveiled uh, a pinball machine, I would do it probably in, in one of two ways. Uh, one of them would be Canadian Mountie. Would be riding in on a golf cart with a hockey stick, some Tim Hortons donuts, and a six-pack of Molson, and enough poutine to feed the entire group there. Or I would do the next best thing that comes to mind, which would be to take my very expensive pinball machine, cover it in garbage bags and tape, and then unveil it to everybody. So I remember, I I remember no fear, because I'm from... uh, I'm from rural Canada, and uh, No Fear was very, very much a cool brand um, because it was very um, extreme sports and and hunting, and it was it was really big in that community. Um, it also had its knockoffs like No Surrender. People and their like Chevy Cavaliers would have the No Fear stickers on them. It was huge in the in the in the sort of mid mid late 90s it was it made no sense to me because i i was not of that wasn't their target demographic i guess but you were not extreme i was i was not extreme uh like i said uh, golf cart tim hortons and uh, poutine having a pinball machine after a clothing company we're seeing a bit of a decline here in the in the quality of licenses aren't we yeah this particular one so greg Ferreras and steve ritchie once again do the voices greg ferris uh he would be wise guy one of the characters in the game steve ritchie being skull who is in the middle of the play field steve ritchie and greg actually wrote the scripts together and and you say this is your best call out package uh well he used the, he used so many quotes from this game on other games continually you know, play better, which is just part of just he's used that in multiple games. That's in Spider Man. It's in Spider Man. It's in ACDC. Uh, pinball's not a spectator sport. That's also in Spider Man. <laughs> he just reused the whole. It, 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 even the voice he does in ACDC, it's basically Skull. Yeah, it's the Steve Ritchie voice, isn't it? Play better. I love it. I'm in a minority here, but whatever. Uh, Steve says most of my games are pretty rowdy. With a name like No Fear, it had to be a quick and somewhat dangerous game. At least it should feel like that. The game comes off like it's very violent mean, but I think most people found it pretty forgiving. Okay, I didn't. Mine's brutal. There are breaks in the game if you choose to take them. 
What is wrong with physical play? I think that's when you're physically involved in the game, you enjoy it more and will remember it. The funny thing about No Fear, Steve also says, during No Fear, it was incredibly difficult to design the game and watch over others' designs. Hence, hit the George Gomez role. No Fear became a rushed project and probably suffered a little for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I talked with Steve before. He wanted to do one more Whitewood, and he wanted to remove a shot. He felt it had too many shots, which if you've ever played it and you start hitting posts galore because all the shots are so tight and there's so many of them, you can see where it was coming from. Yeah, so he probably wanted to open up something, a ramp or an orbit to mm-hmm. make it a little... But then again, he took the, the shot under the skull... It's the same shot that's in Star Wars. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he reused that. Plus he, the U-turn, he sort right? of reused the supercharger, kind of. It uses the same mechanism. You go up the ramp, it has three magnets. Except now, you are the supercharger with your flipper trying to keep the jump going over and over and over. Is no fear is no fear a bad game? Not to me it ain't. I mean it's it doesn't take long it's to get to the... It's not roller games, let's put it that way. It doesn't take long to get to the wizard mode, but I almost never get there because it's just hard. I had a friend of mine had a No Fear, and he, he enjoyed it. I never did get to play it. But it, it, it was just not the it was not right. He just did... It, I don't know. He couldn't get into it. The thing to remember is a lot of the modes are rip-offs of Star Trek Next Gen. Oh, interesting. Literally. Exactly. This Okay, Skydive is the same as Asteroid. You know, asteroid, you hit a shot and it locks in a value, and then all the shots are letting you hit them. The exact same thing in No Fear. The next gen has the one mode where you hit the side ramp once and it's over. I can't remember which one that was. In No Fear, it's the skiing one. You hit the right ramp and it's over. They just they just copied some of the modes. They're literally the same rules. What's really cool and unique about the game is the skull character. So there's the No Fear logo had a skull in it. In some of their designs. Yep, and he comes to life. And they put this skull in the middle of the play field, and his jaw moves, he talks. And he's noisy, that jaw, so I had to put all kinds of dampening around mine so it's not as loud. You don't want to be playing it with the glass off, because you'll hear you'll hear more of the creaking of the, the, the jaw than you will him actually singing or talking. The other interesting thing about No Fear is... And I don't know if they did this on any other game. If you know, please email us at silverballchronicles at gmail.com. But No Fear has a different playfield mounting system than what Williams usually used. If you look at the cabinet, and you're at IPDB right now, you look at the side of the cabinet, you notice there's no bolts. The two bolts that are usually on each side where the, uh, the mounting is. Oh, interesting. They're not there. They actually cut the inside of the cabinet and the playfield rides along the cut. It actually sucks, kind of. It's way harder to pull the playfield out and push it back in. I don't know if they did this with any other games, but I know they did it with No Fear. Yeah, and this is we're getting into that sort of period of, of decline, right? It's not it's not right at the beginning, it's not right at the end. It's kind of right in the middle where we're declining. We're declining by ninety five, ninety six. Yeah, things are, you know, 95 is really where it starts to fall. It doesn't fall off a cliff, but it really does. you got those big major hits of like 91 to 94, and now it really starts to taper off. It really is not going to happen. Yeah, you don't have games selling 10,000 units anymore. Yeah, it, video games, and, and video games really taking over. People aren't going out sort of the millennials, the younger generation of the time and, and Gen X, you know, you guys are, 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 you know, graduating college university, you're getting out into your real life, 
you know, you're too busy to go to an arcade or things like that. You're having your kids, my generation, I'm in my mid thirties, you know, at that time I'm in sort of middle school, high school, we're more at home now, right? We're playing video games at home. Television is really big now. Families in general aren't going out for entertainment, right? We're, we're being entertained at home, but we're going out for food where it was kind of the opposite before where you would go out for entertainment and you would eat at home. So, you know, society has changed a little bit and, and pinball has sort of shown that is that people aren't going out and playing. I mean, this is where we can kind of wrap up this episode. This was Steve Ritchie's last game at Williams after his second decade of almost nonstop hit pinball machines, brand new original themes, the biggest licensed themes pinball had ever seen. He continued to build on his, uh, on the, on the title of best selling pinball designer of all time. So around this time, Williams Midway, they basically buy Atari. So Atari is now under the Bally Midway Williams banner. So Steve Ritchie ends up going there. It also gives him the opportunity to move back to California because that's where Atari, if you remember from our first episode, that's where Atari is primarily based. Yeah, Steve so, has come full circle, right? He, he came in working on the line at Atari. Now he's coming back as a bigwig. As a senior staff producer. And he would design and produce the racing game California Speed, which sold very well. Sold over almost 8,000 units, had sales of over $40 million, on a budget of $2 million, with a crew of 16 video programmers and artists. And I have played California Speed before. It's fun. It's crazy. He kills it at Atari, too. Like, he's just like, you know what? I can't, you know, pinball's not doing it. I think I think it'll be better if I just serve, you know, Williams Bally Midway over in the Atari division. And he goes over there and he just kills it right out of the gate. So he was never involved in any of the pinball 2000 things or any of that chapter of Williams. He was already gone by that point. So 1996 was really the beginning of the decline in pinball that would uh, gradually diminish in sales. And three years later, Williams closed its pinball division and pinball was basically declared dead. When Atari was bought by Williams, it was over. They turned everything off. In 2000, it was over. They paid me and I went and did some other things, some slot machines. Yeah, and you can really, I remember in that, that uh, 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 going through that, his, he just really just, the wind was really out of his sails when he said that, right? You could tell that he was really bummed out by the death of pinball because it had given him so much. That's the end of our second Steve Ritchie episode. What did you think of that one, Ron? Um, I own a lot of the games we went through, or have owned. You have... So many pinball machines in level zero. Well, there are, most people will be like, okay, what ones did you keep? Like, are you high? So let me get this straight. You kept F-14 Tomcat. Okay, that's fine. I could see that. But you kept roller games and, and you kept no fear? Like, are you high? And you got rid of Black Knight 2000? <sighs> but I do have Getaway. I don't have any Steve Ritchie games. I'd love to own something oh, that's in this such era. a fail. I know. Probably not the next generation just because I, I don't want to deal with the headaches and I'm not a big super pin fan, but and it's really heavy. Yeah. I'd like to, you know, really I'd like heavy. a getaway. I think a getaway would fit in uh, high speed would fit in, I think fairly well into my collection. Um, like I said, Terminator two, man, oh, if I could friggin' find a really good Terminator two, but didn't pay a fortune for it. Terminator two is pretty easy to service. It's not very complicated. Yeah. yeah. If you watch, we, we, we've been talking a lot in these episodes, this, this episode about those promo videos that Williams did for distributors. They're hilarious in that if the if the game is very uncomplicated, they would say, and the play field is uncluttered for easy cleaning. 
And then they would show a game like Whitewater, and they would never use that comment. <laughs> yeah. It's like, wait a minute, this game isn't exactly uncluttered. This game will drive you insane. This game will drive you insane trying to clean any of this. Yeah, but it doesn't have a pop bumper. I mean, if Steve Ritchie called it a career here, right? Like, this would be a pretty great run. It would be. Like if he if he was just like ah screw it I'm gonna I'm gonna go be a I gotta go farm transistors over here in uh, California or grow some asparagus. So would you say our first episode of Steve Ritchie was like the Star Wars prequels, and then this is like the the original episode four through four through six from your best material, and now we're going to the the later trilogy. The Last Jedi was good. Mm. Mm. So I guess that's like that's like spider-man although when he went to stern he left there and then came back so it's actually uh is there a, f- a, a fourth trilogy mm, yeah See, he's in uncharted territory steve ritchie is a chameleon he is an odd fellow he's engaged in the community he's passionate he's fun he he, he holds no punches uh and he's lasted forever and he will never retire never from his own he has no plans on retiring he is probably going to die making a wood uh, white wood. He's just they're just going to roll him into the into the machine and just bury him right there. Hey, Harry Williams designed games in the 30s all the way into the 80s. So mm. there's precedent. So I'm really looking forward to our next Steve Ritchie episode, but we're going to push that out a little ways down because we've got some really cool other episodes coming up. So in our next episode, we're going to, uh, it's going to be entitled Moving Units, the Bally Art Revolution, and that's going to cover Bally's design, philosophy, and art from around 1978, 70, uh, 79, all the way up to about 1984. So there's some pretty amazing stuff in there. Yeah, when they stopped outsourcing artwork, and decided to create their own in-house art department. Made some of the most awesome backlashes you'll ever see. Let me get Stewie for this one. Hey, Stewie. Stewie, we need you to do the outro. Oh, thank you. As always, you can send your comments, questions, corrections, and concerns to civilballchronicles at gmail.com. We look forward to all your messages, and we read every one. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or your favorite podcatcher. Turn on automatic download so you don't miss a single episode. And remember to leave us a five-star review wherever you found us or on This Week in Pinball's promoter database. That way more people can find us. Do you want to support the podcast? Sure, we all do. Do you need a t-shirt? Of course you do. Swing on over to SilverBallSwag.com and pick up a Silverball Chronicles t-shirt to help us keep the lights on. Back to you, David. Wow, thank you, Stewie. It's hard getting celebrities like him in here. Insult. And it also has, um, sorry, eating an apple and I'm blanking out here. Man, I was in a groove and I totally forgot what I was saying.